right, the chair has called the meeting to order. If you could please rise for the Pledge of Allegiance. Vice President Carter Overstone, if I could take roll. Please. Commissioner Walker. Here. Commissioner Benedicto. Present. Commissioner Yanez. Present. Commissioner Byrne. Here. Commissioner Yee. Here. Uh, Vice President Carter Overstone. Present. Uh, President Elias is in route. Also, also with us tonight, we have Chief Scott from the San Francisco Police Department, as well as Acting Executive Director Diana Rosenstein for DPA is also in route. Item number one, please. Item number one, general public comment. At this time, the public is now welcome to address the commission for up to two minutes on items that do not appear on tonight's agenda, but are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the Police Commission. Under police commission rules of order, during public comment, neither police or DPA personnel nor commissioners are required to respond to questions by the public, but may provide a brief response. Alternatively, you may submit public com comment on either of the following ways, by emailing the Secretary of the Police Commission at sfpd.commission.sfgov.org, or written comments may be sent to the U.S. Postal Service at PHQ's um, Public Safety Building, located at 1245 3rd Street, San Francisco, California, 94158. If you would like to make public comment, please approach the podium. Good evening, Ms. Brown. Good evening, everyone. I'm here concerning my son, Aubrey Abracasa who was murdered August 14, 2006. To this day, his case isn't solved. Um, I know I was here last week concerning um, what do we do about this $250,000 reward and no one's come forth. And we talked about other ways that a person can come forth concerning the unsolved homicides. As a mother, like I said, there's more than one, one, um, sorry, I wasn't prepared. But um, again, I just bring my pictures. This is my son, lifeless, laying on a gurney, dead. I come here with these names of the persons that murdered my son, Hannibal Thomas. It's backwards. Paris Moffitt, Andrew Vardu, Jason Thomas, I mean, and Anthony Hunter, and Marcus Carter. One of them is deceased, and I believe it's him, Marcus. I mean, yes. So you have all the names of the perpetrators that murdered my child. I come here. Yeah, last week I was very emotional, and I'm still emotional. I had one of his friends tell me that he came and saw my son and watched the ambulance turn him over. And that's how he found out that that was my child. He said he didn't know who he was until they turned him over. And I said, what did he look like? He said he was gray. He was already gone. So that bothered me. And I needed to hear that because it's going to make me fight a little harder than what I've been doing. And I will continue to come here and asked for justice for my son, my 16, 17-year-old boy who was murdered. 
Thank you. For members of the public that have any information regarding the murder of Aubrey Abacasa, you can call the anonymous 24-7 tip line at 415-575-4444. Good evening, commissioners. My name is Chris Romero. I'm the executive director of San Francisco Municipal Executives Association. A couple of weeks ago, I sent a letter to the commission having to do with a meeting that occurred on February the 15th where one of our members and one of uh, city employees was interrogated um, with an effort, it seemed, to entrap um, him at, um, by Commissioner Oberstone. Uh, the problem that, that we have with this is this seems to be something that's occurring with a number of city employees, and this, this body is no different. The folks that are on the police command staff uh, have over 400 years of collective professional experience. Um, they are city employees who have given a lot of their lives over to working uh, for the city. And as you just saw, this is not an easy job. To make it harder by bringing folks into these commission meetings and interrogating them and only to, um, it seemed to entrap them and does not seem fair at all. I think one of the, the problems that I saw with the meeting was that it was the lack of respect. These people have been city employees for a very long time and they don't come here for that type of treatment. Uh, so I would expect that in the future when commissioners are speaking to city employees, uh, these people have, again um, have dedicated a, lot, a long time of their lives and at the expense of their families in some cases to come and serve the public. They, they actually deserve the same respect that they give to people and constituents in the city and county of San Francisco. If you have any questions, I would be open to hearing them. Um, I want to thank you for coming. I want to also thank you for writing the letter. I think that um, the, we all experienced this issue, and even as we may discuss and disagree on you know, solving <clears throat> problems, I feel like it's really important, especially for morale in the department, um, to be respectful. So do you have any suggestions on sort of how we can move forward out of this? I know we're not on the agenda, but it is. it would be great to, to hear from you. He's actually not allowed to respond. What I would suggest is that people be treated the way that they want to be treated, okay? Um, I, I was on a commission before. There were, there were issues, and building inspections commission was not an easy commission to be on. And one of the reasons why I was asked to be on that commission was because of the way that city staff were being treated. City inspectors were being constantly, constantly being leaned on by contractors and what have you. And so these jobs are already hard enough as it is. Many people that work for the city have to file Form 700 forms. They have to look at things like secondary employment. They are under a lot of scrutiny as it is. To put that and bear it in public, from my point of view, is just not appropriate. So that's what we would ask, is that before those types of things are brought forward, that there should be some consideration that a number of these folks come here because they wanted to believe, be police officers from the get-go. Okay, now some of these folks have been here for decades. And so to actually, and, and I'm not casting any aspersions to this 
to this commission, all right? One of the things that I've always been mindful of is that people come onto these commissions to do something for the community, to bring forward their ideas so that um, the work can improve. There are people on this staff that have done nothing but that. They come here to improve the way that people work, not only for themselves, their colleagues, but for other police officers. It's already hard enough to recruit, and now it's gonna be hard to keep people who are in command staff. These people progress through the system, they become command staff officers, and we want to keep them. So that's what I would suggest. Again, thank you for being here. I'll just respond. Uh, Mr. Romero, thank you for your letter. Thank you for your comments tonight. And um, I think it's no secret that a number of, of, of people um, who work for the department are upset by the, the, the way that I questioned a senior member of department staff. And Chief Scott suggested that, um, that I attend a command staff meeting to, to hear um, folks' concerns. And I thought that was a great idea. And I, I look forward to doing that. And I think an important part of all of our jobs as commissioners is to hear feedback from the community, uh, feedback we, we don't want to hear and feedback we want to hear. That, that's how democracy works. So I look forward to that. I didn't know that you were going to speak today, but since you did, I, I will just offer a, a public response in, in addition to our meeting that will take place in a couple weeks. There is a big difference between doing your best and falling short and willfully disregarding your obligations. And the events that caused um, that hearing to take place clearly fall into the latter camp. This is not a case of a simple missed deadline. This is a case of going back to the DOJ report where the US Department of Justice highlighted um, that problems with the police department hamstringing the commission's ability to enact policy. And so what happened here is a senior member of the department was well aware of his obligations to assist in the revision of a very important commission policy, brazenly ignored all of the deadlines, and didn't even take five minutes to raise his hand and say that he might need an extension to carry out his important functions. Allowing something like this to go on goes to the very heart of how our system of government works in this city. If a single employee can press pause on any commission policy for any reason or no reason at all, then it's impossible for us to carry out our official duties on this commission. And that behavior is an obstruction, I'll be clear, of the commission's charter functions. So what happened was critically important. Now, I understand that some people didn't appreciate the length at which I questioned the member. And in retrospect, it seems as though I could have questioned him for 10 minutes fewer and gotten the same result. But hindsight is 2020. What I thought was necessary is to make sure and send a clear message that that type of conduct would not be permitted and to send a message that we just cannot do that and that there are simple procedures such as asking for an extension of time if, if, if deadlines can't be met. But we can't have people simply ignoring deadlines altogether and ignoring their responsibilities. And if it took, I don't know how long it was, 40 minutes of time, Commissioner, if it took 40 minutes of questioning to get 
a year or two years of compliance that we never have a situation like that again, I think that that's a pretty good return on investment for the commission's time. The last thing I'll say is that a lot of the folks that are so aggrieved by the questioning are the same folks who watch clips of their favorite senator in Washington questioning senior members of the federal government about important issues of public interest and cheer, and cheer it on and think that it's great when they say, see Elizabeth Warren questioning a senior member of the US DOJ. And so they understand that, and so, and so they understand that effective government oversight sometimes requires asking hard questions, sometimes requires tense moments of questioning. But for some reason, they don't feel that that same effective government oversight belongs here in San Francisco as it relates to the oversight of our police department. And I'll just say that I, I couldn't disagree more with, with that double standard. At the end of the day, the buck stops with the seven people sitting up here as it relates to the development of policy. No one's gonna come save us if things go off the rails. It's up to each one of us up here to exercise our important obligations. That's exactly what I did. And, um, and that's why I thought it was important to call that hearing. So thank you, Mr. Romero, and, and I look forward to speaking with command staff about this matter in a couple weeks. Thank you. Um, your comments say a lot about the commission. Thank you. Line item two, adoption of minutes action for the meetings of February 15th, 2023 amended. Mo yeah. Motion to adopt the minutes. Second. Second. Sergeant. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item two, the adoption of minutes, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have seven yeses. Line item three, Chief's report, discussion. Weekly crime trends and public safety concerns. Provide an overview of offenses, incidents, or events occurring in San Francisco <coughs> having an impact on public safety. Commission discussion on unplanned events and activities that Chief describes will be limited to determining whether to calendar for a future meeting. Thank you, Sergeant, excuse me. Thank you, Sergeant Youngblood. Uh, good evening, Commissioner, President Elias, Vice President Carter Overstone, uh, Acting Executive Director Rosenstein, and the public. Uh, just to highlight some of the overall crime trends, I won't uh, repeat what's been posted, but I do want to highlight the biggest area of concern is the increase in homicides uh, from four this time last year to seven year to date. Uh, majority of those are gun-related homicides, and that is something that uh, the department is paying particular attention <coughs> to. Um, on, the, on the converse side of that, good news, if there is any good news, is that our overall shootings are down by three, 
uh, from 29, this time last year to 26, excuse me, excuse me, <coughs> 26, which is a 10% uh, decrease from this time last year. <coughs> Our total gun violence, uh, victims of gun violence is flat at uh, no change from this time last year, 33, this time last year, 33 year to date. So shootings is definitely uh, part of our overall goal to reduce the number of gun-related homicides. And I'll talk a little bit about what we're doing uh, to do that in a minute. Uh, as far as the major incidents this week, we did have one homicide during the reporting period. That was in Central District at Pier 5. This was on February 27th at 1 a.m. in the morning. The witness heard a pop, followed by a male uh, yelling. The witness went outside, saw a victim leaning against the wall, and the witness called 911. The victim was later pronounced at the scene. This is an ongoing investigation. No arrests have been made at this time. There was also a suspicious death on the 1st of March at 9.07 p.m., 200 block of Taylor. Uh, the victim and an acquaintance, was, acquaintance were in an apartment. The victim, the residents left the victim there, and short time later, the acquaintance called the resident and stated that they were smoking an unknown substance that could have possibly been fentanyl or crystal meth. The resident came back to the apartment early in the morning around 3 a.m. and saw, or early in the morning of 3 1, I'm sorry, and saw the victim was asleep on the floor. The resident left again, and when they returned, the victim was not breathing. Uh, 911 was called, and that person was later pronounced. So that was ruled a suspicious death, and we will wait on the medical examiner's determination as to uh, the cause of that death. There were seven non-injury shootings uh, of this reporting period, two in the Southern District, two in the Bayview, two at unknown locations, and one in the Ingleside District. Uh, they don't appear to be related. All of seven of these are ongoing investigations with no arrests made yet and I'll just go through the locations of uh, 200 block of 9th Street in the Southern, also um, 900 block of V Avenue in, on Treasure Island in the Southern. The two in Bayview were Fitzgerald and Jennings. One was on the 28th of February. The other one was the unit block of George Court. That was on the 4th of March. And then the two unknown, we're still trying to determine exactly where those two happened. And the last shooting was in the Ingleside at uh, on LaSalle, and this victim um, was struck. All of the victims apparently are in non-life-threatening conditions, so they will are expected to survive these shootings, and all investigations are ongoing. Uh, last two things to report is a significant arrest, a really good arrest in the Bayview District. This is the 1,000 block of Kansas Street where a small baby was, uh, there was an attempt to kidnap the baby. The victim was able to get away from the suspect and the suspect tried to run, but was apprehended a short time later by responding officers. So that case uh, has been presented to the, will be presented, or has been presented, I'm sorry, to the district attorney's office and charges have been filed on that case. Um, there's also an incident on the Reardon High School grounds. This was a battery that occurred on May 2nd uh, officers were dispatched to a large fight in the, at the gymnasium. They assisted, the officers, assisted with dispersing the large crowd from the school grounds, and it was learned that the injured victim was a basketball player, and this fight happened during the game. The victim was punched by behind from a player from the opposing team 
which resulted in a large fight and a brawl. No arrests have been made at this time, but that is an ongoing investigation. Tenderloin, um, the operation to disrupt the narcotics uh, dealing in Tenderloin is still ongoing, still very good uh, community feedback from what they're seeing in the, in the Tenderloin, and there are still some significant challenges. Uh, one of the things that I want to report to the public and the commission is the increase in the seizure of fentanyl. Uh, there's been a 63% increase in fentanyl year to date. We have we have um, seized 60, uh, see. trying to do the math, I'm sorry, over, over 50,000 grams of fentanyl. This time last year, we were just over 20,000 grams of fentanyl. So again, fentanyl is the focus uh, because of the devastation that is caused in our city. Um, the arrests are up as well on narcotics dealing just in the past two weeks, there were 26 arrests for possession for sale. So um, that operation will continue. And again, part of our goal is to do everything we can to disrupt the narcotics dealing, and that includes a number of strategies, including presence um, by bus, plainclothes operations, seizure of uh, fentanyl, legal seizure of fentanyl, and really not allowing the drug dealers to post up on the corners. We're still having some challenges in the overnight hours, and we have to continue to make adjustments there. But so far, I've uh, just had a public gathering yesterday with many residents and business owners of the Tenderloin, and they are seeing some progress that they're pleased with, but we still have a long way to go. Let me be clear about that. Um, so that is uh, the report for this week. Happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Chief. Commissioner Walker. Thank you for that report. Um, I know you also met with some folks in the mission. I think that um, this conversation is connected to the discussions about the budget and um, especially the additional budget to add officers. And um, I know it also <laughs> includes some money for expanding the reach of the ambassador program. Um, is there discussion about training um, I know that there's been, there's also talk of, about um, the danger in some of these areas and the, there's a kind of gap between the officers and the alchemy. So I wonder if, if you all are talking about that. Um, yeah, yes, um, that is um, an ongoing discussion and ongoing strategy to support uh, the work that urban alchemy and, and, and other um, uh, from the ambassadors, the city ambassadors, the SFPD ambassadors, um, to coordinate that work to enhance public safety in the areas that they're deployed. So with Urban Alchemy, particularly in this area, Civic Center area, Tenderloin, um, that has been effective in many of the locations that I just mentioned. And what we have found to be the best formula is, you know, we don't, we, nobody expects Urban Alchemy to take on criminal activity. What they are very good at doing is uh, connecting with community members. Uh, once a corner or a street has been cleaned out, then they maintain that location, and that has paid uh, some dividends across the, the city. If you look at uh, the area around Bill Graham, which we've had some challenges with narcotics usage and the like, uh, that area has been pretty clean lately, and Urban Alchemy is, is helping to maintain that. 
So those discussions are ongoing. Um, the, particularly the Tenderloin captain, Captain Chen, is working with Urban Alchemy to make the best of that partnership. Uh, just one other thing, you mentioned the mission part, and I didn't include this in my report, but I'll take this opportunity. Uh, there uh, was some really good collaborative uh, planning done to address some of the, the prostitution activity on Cap Street in the mission. Um, a lot of community complaints, neighborhood complaints about um, this activity, and it's, it's not new activity, it just got to a fever pitch with people's frustration. Um, and I want to take my hats off to uh, and say thank you to Assistant Chief Lazar and many others. You know, Assistant Chief Lazar went out and walked that beat uh, after midnight to really get eyes on. And Captain McEachern over at the mission, they really put together a, a, a good plan that we will have to sustain to address the issue. And part of that plan includes rescuing the victims, the human trafficking victims, but it also includes um, traffic enforcement, road um, barricades to disrupt the activity, and the results so far have been very good. Uh, community has been very happy. I think it was about a week ago, there was actually a community event. Yeah. Uh, Commissioner Benedicto was there. Thank you very much, Commissioner, for going to replace all of what was going on there with a community event, I think is a really, really significant turnaround. So our challenge now is to keep this going and, and to sustain it. But it speaks to really what uh, reform and the community policing part of reform is all about because at the end of the day, all these things are put in, being put into place to make us more effective, but also to be able to collaborate with the very communities that we serve. So that is happening both in the Tenderloin and the Mission. And so far, so good, but we still have a long way to go because we have to sustain this work. And are the other, like, um departments coordinating with you, for instance, DPW and public health, I mean, they're, you know, that's some of the issue is that it isn't just the police that are, that should be out there, but um, we haven't quite coordinated that very well. So hopefully that's within the budget too of, and again, like the cross training of, you know, training folks when to bring police in and when to maybe reach out more to DPH. Yes, thank you for that. Um, we have to continue to do that better. I mean, it's not just a police department um, left in any of the situations that I've talked about tonight. DPH or public health needs to be in that, right. that equation. Public works needs to be in that equation, homeless and supportive housing, and they all are. One of our, our commitments is to work better together because we cannot work in silos. I mean, it, it's, um, it's a challenge when one department tries to take on their piece of this without collaboration with the other departments. So we are doing that better and there's more work to be done there as well. But uh, the mission, I mean, the mission incident, we got public works involved, we got the supervisor's office involved, we have nonprofits involved. So it is a community effort. That's great, great work. Because that's how, I think that's what it's gonna take. You know, just thank ongoing. You. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Yee. Uh, thank you very much, Sarah, President uh, Elias. Uh, Chief Scott, I noticed the uh, overall crime report from last week to this week in uh, violent crime has dropped uh, 14%, and also on the property crimes has dropped 27%. And then your total drop or reduction in crime was 26%. I was wondering if you have any reasons whether the, that because we're short on staff, whether it was the additional overtime uh, of officers that um, 
contribute to this reduction? Well, I mean, I, the overtime definitely helps uh, shore up some gaps. So um, that helps. They, they can't attribute all the reduction to that, but it does help. The other thing that I think is the, the, the focus in some of the areas, for instance, in the Tenderloin, we do know from data that a lot of the violent crime in the Tenderloin or a significant portion of it, particularly the homicides, are related to two things, street conditions and some of the narcotic sales and all that goes along with that. So uh, disrupting that activity and disrupting the narcotic sales, we expect it to have some impact on reduction in violent crime. Um, some of the strategies that we're working on in the southeast part of the city, particularly the Bayview um, and parts of, of the southern, go around really trying to get to the most at risk and, and get them to a better place with services, uh, SVIP and, and entities like that. Um, you all have met you know, Officer Johnson and, and, and um, some of the people that work really on the community side of this equation. And they're really doing some good job, some, some very good work, uh, the CVRT, to get the right people together to prevent retaliatory shootings. And that's a part of our, our, our strategy is when we hear of something that might spark gun violence that we get in front of it by trying to get the right people in the room to intervene. And they have done a really, really good job at that. Uh, we, homicides are up, but shootings are down. Um, and I think that is directly attributable to some of these strategies. And I hear from the community members who also get involved in this intervention that, you know, the belief is that there are some things that have been um, snuffed out, beefs and that type of thing, because the right people got involved and got the right um, community people in, involved in these conversations. And, and I think that's prevented some of our shootings. So we'll continue that strategy. Again, still a lot to build on, but we, we have some some of the right people in the right places. And I uh, just want to follow up on uh, regarding to Tenderloins. I remember it was over just close to a year ago, uh, uh, Commissioner Burns and myself went up there and we to your office and uh, discussed the issues of the Tenderloin and the staffing and making sure that uh, their, their community is safer. Because I remember driving down High Street and I think the only clear lane was the center lane. So I have seen it, the, the, the improvement that's, uh, that's on that area on the Tenderloin. So uh, I'd like to see it continue to uh, improve better. Uh, as last week, uh, the community has spoke and respond to the changes in there. Uh, I guess we're headed in the right positive direction. I hope you continue that and make it safe for all. So thank you very much, Chief, and to your command staff and uh, members for keeping us safe. Thank, thank you. you. Commissioner Byrne. Uh, thank you, President Elias. Um, uh, two points, uh, Chief. How, how long more will the Tenderloin operation continue? Well, the thing with the Tenderloin that we, we did, uh, it was less than a year ago, is we, we permanently transferred officers to the Tenderloin. It was, I think at the time it was 20. So sustainability is, is more possible because those officers now have been there, they're engaged. Um, so we're gonna continue to go in the Tenderloin. Now we do still occasionally move additional officers in Tenderloin. Wednesdays are usually heavy days. And what we've been doing the last couple of weeks, if the Tenderloin needs support to address some of the drug dealing and all, 
we will move additional officers there. So that, that will continue for the foreseeable future. We still have some, some challenges overnight. Uh, I've been out there late at night. I know you have as well. And sometimes it, uh, when officers get off on the midnight or whatever, it's, there is less deployment. So we have to fix some of that, but the effort will continue. And Tenderloin is the, the one station in the city that's fully staffed. Actually, there are a couple of officers over. So, so there's, but there's been an increase in officers in the last month. And that's both the swing shift and the midnight shift. It, some of that is just reallocating what Captain Chan has, but there has been an increase. For instance, on, on today is Wednesday, so if we if we need extra support, um, officers are sent to the Tenderloin because Wednesdays is usually a heavy day for deployment. And we've done this in other districts too. Let me be clear: we've done it in the Bayview with gun violence and all. But right now, the Tenderloin is really uh, a focus to to disrupt what's going on with the drug dealing and the stabbings and things like that in Tenderloin. Thank you. Um, yeah. Just one other point, uh, so that the record is clear, uh, Chief. When you brought up the fight at Reardon High School, um, <clears throat> I want the record to be clear that the uh, Reardon coach and the Reardon administration kept almost all of those basketball players on the bench. The thing deteriorated because the out-of-town high school, that coach had lost control of all his players, and that's why SFPD w w was called. It's not to say what the cause of the fight was, but uh, in, in this instance, I don't think it's, uh, I know there was no intent to disparage Reardon, but I, I want to make it clear that what Reardon did, given the circumstances, the coach and the adults there is to be commended because they, they kept it from uh, completely uh, deteriorating. Yeah, th thank you for that. And definitely there was no, no attempt to disparage it, but thank you for that clarification. So. Thank you. Sergeant. Members of the public, they would like to make public comment regarding line item three, Chief's report. Please approach the podium. Good evening. Um, I'd like to use the overhead again. We were talking about um, the, uh, all the uh, killings that's been happening now. And I know, um, you know, I was going to put this down here. We're talking about unsolved homicides and all the killings, one killing is too much. You see all of these homicides, only a few have, them have been solved. And what do we do? We had a presentation about this here, about zero dollars being paid in a decade. And there was a presentation here. I haven't heard anything about this anymore. There was some suggestions that should be made that was supposed to be done with this presentation about how to solve unsolved homicides and what other ways we can do it. I haven't heard anything since this article has come out except for last week. Um, the, it was brought up. But why don't we make room for this to happen for the unsolved homicides? I bring this again. This is me standing over my son. No mother wants this. That's why I come back every week, because this is what they left me with, a dead son. He was full of life, full of life. What do we do? I need answers. What other way can we solve this? The presentation said that something would be done. 
I haven't heard anything since then. Please. Line item four, DPA director's report, discussion. Report on recent DPA activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to calendar any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, President Elias, Vice President Carter Oberstone, Chief Scott, members of the public, fellow commissioners. Um, I want to start out on a happy note. Today is International Women's Day, and I want to wish all of my fellow uh, women that make this city work and uh, a, a happy International Women's Day. I would also like to apologize um, for being late today. Um, the traffic, I've never seen traffic that bad, so my sincerest apologies. Those of you that have had um, repeated uh, meetings with me know that I'm never late and I'm, I, I don't ever show up late, so my, my apologies, this is not, this is a first. <laughs> Um, I'll go through the numbers and then I have some uh, interesting stuff to discuss with everybody. Uh, so we, the cases opened uh, as, a, as compared to last year are down uh, from 117 to 112. Uh, cases closed also down from 121 to 117. We currently have 273 cases pending uh, with, and have sustained uh, eight cases so far have mediated two cases so far this year, and currently we have 24 cases that are past the 270 deadline, 16 of them are told. In terms of weekly trends, um, the current level, uh, uh, we've received 13 cases this past week, and the, the allegations that have been complained about the most are that office, an officer failed to take required action, and that an officer displayed threatening, intimidating, or harassing behavior. Again, these are allegations um, that require investigation, and that's what we will do. Um, we uh, have had the most number of cases open this week uh, related to officers in the Tenderloin Station and Richmond Station, oddly enough. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about DPA's outreach efforts this past week. DPA investigators presented at the Hayes Valley Neighborhood Association community meeting on March 6th. Uh, they were there to answer questions from the community about our organization and provide uh, information about the uh, discipline process. We also uh, presented at Bayview Station community meetings. And hot off the press, earlier today, all of our mediators uh, received implicit bias training today. And we had a guest appearance, we had a guest speaker uh, that came, uh, Captain Canning, spoke to all of our mediators today. And our mediator director and senior investigator extraordinaire, Ali Schulteis, is in the audience today to answer any questions that the public may have uh, about mediation or investigations in general. I do wanna talk a little bit about pending discipline cases. So currently we have 87 cases that are pending with the chief for chief's hearings. Uh, those are cases where the chief has notified the officer that he intends to impose discipline and the officer has requested a hearing uh, on the issue. Um, I have good news and bad news. 
So let's start, well, we'll mix it up. Um, so here's the problem. About 25 of them are over two years old, and that's a problem. Twenty-five of the 87 are over two years old, um, and that's a problem. That's a problem because those particular officers are not receiving the discipline that we have intended for them, number one, and uh, number two, uh, you know, it, it thwarts the process of progressive discipline. Uh, I know that some of these types of cases are out of the chief's control because there are people that are on leave, uh, certain diff different types of leave, et cetera, but many are not. I have, as you know, I've been going to the different stations and doing trainings, and as I look into the audience, I'm like, wait a minute, aren't you supposed to have a chief's hearing soon? So um, some delays are due to rescheduling of the parties, for sure, but some delays are also due to rescheduling from the deputy chiefs, and so to the extent that we can control that, I think it's important to control that. Um, I know SFPD had been hoping to alleviate some of the backlog uh, with a, based on an MOU that they've entered into with the Police Officers Association to deal with written reprimands. I'm not sure that that is uh, adequately addressing the backlog and uh, DPA has some concerns that we have expressed to the chief and the legal department um, about that MOU. However, I want to focus on the positive right now and moving forward, uh, I do believe that we have a viable collaborative solution to the problem um, moving forward. We are hoping to incorporate into DGO 2.07 um, with the help of written directives and Ms. Worsham and Mr. Betts, who we met with today. No, maybe yesterday. I can't remember anymore. Um, language that will require that the hearing officers uh, that are assigned to these cases uh, will conduct hearings within 180 days of the officers notifying the chief uh, that they are requesting a chief's hearing and that these hearing officers will be required to issue their recommendations to the chief within 90 days. Um, assuming that language makes it through concurrence and meet and confer, uh, we believe moving forward there shouldn't be a backlog if we set these uh, parameters in, in place. Um, Ms. Kaywood, our Director of Policy, will present the idea and the details of it to you during her Sparks report in April, so you'll get uh, the actual language as well as the, you know, flesh out the numbers, but I just wanted to give you all a heads up on that issue. Um, I do have some additional comments that I will save as we call the different agenda items. Uh, DPA does not have anything in closed session this evening. As I said, we do have senior investigator Ali Schulheist in, in, the, um, in the audience. Uh, if, any, if anybody has any questions, um, you can also, also contact us by phone at 415-241-7711. Uh, you can look us up on our website, uh, sfgov.org backslash DPA. You can Google us. We're here, and I'm, I'm happy to uh, field any questions that you may have with respect to my report. Um, quick, quick question. Were there, you said how many of the, was it 88 chiefs hearings? At, at this Is point, it, we have 87, 87. hearings okay. pending. And so am I correct in understanding that moving forward, the solution is that you're going to get 180 days to have the hearing plus which is six months, then you get another three months for the decision? 
so that's nine months total from the moment that a notice goes out? That, that seems like a long time. Well, considering that some of these cases are going back to 2015, 2016, 2017, there's cases that are pending that are old. Um, we think that's a considerable improvement, and, and hope, I think that we ha also have to take into consideration everybody's schedule. That's the drop-dead deadline, right? Assuming there are continuances that are granted, assuming that there are other issues, unforeseen emergencies taken care of. Um, you know, I think that, the, that that's a reasonable estimate of time. Well, I guess here's my issue. You know, when D Director Henderson first brought this issue to the commission, you know, we were alarmed by these numbers, and he's been reporting on them every week, and I think it was the week before last, I asked him, I said, 88 seems like a lot, and there was no, it was kind of like, oh, okay, and then the chief, I asked the chief why there's 88, why haven't we got that number down, how old is the oldest case? And the answer was, we're working on solutions to, with respect to the continuances to get this number down. And it just seems like this number isn't going down, um, since it was first brought to our attention. And it seems very problematic for the points that you raise, which is if there are outstanding cases, how, I mean, that the public has brought to your attention that aren't being resolved for years on end, I mean, that, that really does a disservice to the public who files these complaints with, with DPA. Um, and it's also not fair for officers who aren't being, you know, the subject of discipline um, and to, to have, you know, coworkers who have open discipline cases for years and they pick up a new case and they are, you know, there's no consequence for that in terms of the progressive discipline because that's the model that is used. I agree with you. However, uh, DPA really doesn't have much control over the schedules of deputy chiefs who are assigned to, uh, to hear these cases. Um, and, or, you know, I mean, it takes at least three or four moving parts to have these hearings. It takes a deputy chief, it takes a POA representative, it takes the officer, and it takes DPA. I can assure you that DPA, unless there's a, a, a dire emergency that we do make all, all efforts to be at each and every hearing when it is first assigned to us. Um, and so, to the extent that we, what, to the extent that we can control the schedule by being there and being available, we always make ourselves available and rearrange our schedule. There's, only, there's not much I can do or we can do uh, with respect to the schedule of everybody else involved in those hearings. Okay. Well, let me turn it to the chief. I mean, chief, what, what steps can be taken so that we can rectify the situation? Because I know that I've raised this issue a couple of times. You know, long term, I think is going to take a policy change. You know, um, policy change in terms of what? That just creating deadlines, creating. Well, no, not, not the deadlines. So, well, let me hear your question first. Though. No, Sorry. go ahead. The the way is the policy is written. The chiefs' hearings are the responsibility of deputy chiefs for the DGO. Um, three years ago, four years ago, we brought commanders into the MEA union uh, or association. And part of, part of the desire to do that is to separate from um, the group. So we, the, the plan was at some point to have commanders take on this role, too. We only have six deputy chiefs. You know, and so like the better part of last year, we only had four. We had deputy chiefs off on significant injuries. Um, still have people who are off work. 
We, and so six became four. We've had a, almost a complete turnover in the deputy chief ranks. So really it's a matter of not having enough people to do it. And the other thing is when people retire, which that rank has pretty much turned over in the last two years twice, you have to reassign these cases. I'm sure the commission can appreciate that because you all have the same issue. So some of this is just the numbers. Um, Quite frankly, I think we have more discipline cases now than we had some years ago, too. So the longer-term solution is the policy change to get more people to hear these, these cases. The shorter-term solution are some of the things that we've already put into place is to really be strict on the continuances as, as much as we can do that. You know, if somebody's off work on an injury, there's not a whole lot we can do or sickness or illness or something like that. But to be strict on the continuances, uh, we're tightening up some of our internal processes. Um, the cases that are, yeah, I don't think we have that many that are like 2015 or 2016. I think most of those are already cleared out, but. No, and, I, and to be fair, they are usually ones that are where somebody's on long-term disability. I know of at least one from 2017 where somebody's been on disability for a long time. Well, I think yeah. it'll be helpful next week. DPA provides us the actual breakdown of the numbers. So that we can see break down how the 88 how many are on disability how many are um, just old and stagnant how many are yeah on leave stuff like that I would just ask that that is something that I think SFPD has access to um, that would be that would require <laughs> yeah. us to I mean I think we probably could but we would just be asking SFPD okay. for that chief can you provide the breakdown of those 88 cases or 87 sure. yes. that are outstanding tell us what the longest the age of the cases and i asked for that before to out of the the 87 cases how many are uh, told if you will or pending because of the officer's unavailability or being out how many were are because of continuances um so that we can get a better idea and we should probably agendize this for friday that is uh the continuances is going to be the biggest issue i mean it's a combination of uh, both on, on all sides with cases being continued. So that, that is our biggest issue by far, so. I'm not sure we keep track of the continuances. I think it will be easier to see who is on disability rather than. Well, um, provide us as much yeah, information as you can. I think we need a better picture of what's exactly happening because we're not getting it. And just for, for clarity's sake and for, for completeness sake, these are just DPA cases. So there could be other cases right. from internal affairs that are pending. Uh, chief's hearings, but we don't, I don't know about, we, we at the DPA would not know about them, so. You should include those too. Sure. Go ahead. Hey, Chief, just wanted to get a clarification on your answer to President Elias' question. When you said the long-term solution is to get more people to hear the cases, were you referring to commanders specifically? Yes. Or just, okay, yes. just wanted to clarify. Thanks. Thank you. And if I may clarify, I, the uh, DGO 2.07 language that we w we've been working on, we are asking for the inclusion of commanders as possible hearing officers. So the language does uh, reflect that that request. When's the when's 207 coming up for revision? Uh, I, the draft is already in. I, I don't know off the top of my head the timeline, but I know the draft has already been okay. the grid and all that's been exchanged. So. Okay. It should be very soon. It's going to be within 120 days. We have 100. It would be within 90 days. There we so. go. All right, uh, Commissioner Benedicto. <coughs> Thank you. I I think some of my questions were answered. I, I think the the out of the 87, the most notable was that there are 25 that are over two years old, um, and I think that's the number we'd want to focus on seeing go down. 
um, again, with the caveat that some are have um, disability issues, would it be possible for DPA to add that as a line for its report? So in addition to cases pending with chief, uh, an, updating, an updated count of cases pending with chief, that subset that's over, over two years old? Yes. So right now that'd be 25 and, and hopefully um, with time. Um, and I think it should be both though, Kevin. The total and it should be the total, and then yeah, like the number on disability and the number on, um, and if, the, if that's something that is better obtained by the chief, then it can be included in the chief support. I mean, I, I mean, the, the reports are back to back, and the information is the same. So whoever is, is better to do it, but I think it's something the commission needs to keep a, a close eye on as as we move forward. Um, it does sound like there are some positive changes coming in 2.07, but you know that's coming up in April it probably won't be fully implemented until the summer at the earliest. So are there specific steps that the department's taking, especially for those 25 that you, you can, that are happening now, sort of in the short term? Yeah, the, one of the, uh, I think the most important things is to, to really try to limit um, as much as we can do that, cases being continued when they're on calendar. I mean, there are things happen, life happens, we've had, uh, a rash of people off in this past year. Um, COVID has been an issue. We've had people who have had COVID multiple times and those types of things. So, I mean, some of that is beyond control, but what we have instructed our, our attorneys to do, and Ms. Warsham is the, uh, Ashley Warsham is the managing attorney, is to really scrutinize these continuances on all sides because you have you know, multiple parties that have to get their schedules together for these cases and uh, so that can be a problem for us and it has been a problem, so. So that, that sort of instruction has gone out to the deputy yes. chiefs and to legal to, to limit continuances. So do you expect then, you know, understanding that these things take time, we should see that 25 number go down in the next six months? As far as the older cases, yes. Yeah. Uh, the overall numbers really depends on how many people appeal. I mean, you know, it's can't predict how many officers are going to appeal their cases, but the the numbers that exist, those numbers, if they're in a bubble, yeah, they will go down. Yeah, well, which is why I think I'm most focused on those older, the, those 25 cases that have real significant signs of age, because that's a number that won't grow as new cases are filed, right. only as more time passes. So I'd like to, you know, I think it'd be great if we could report to the public you know, later this year that that number of 25, as we included in our report, you know, is declining um, and, and, ho and hopefully at some point is composed only of those who have disability and are on leave. Um, thank you, Chief. Uh, I also just want to, uh, I'm glad that, that, that the mediators underwent that implicit bias training. Um, I had the privilege of speaking to the DPA mediators last year uh, and meeting Michelle Tice and they are, uh, we've said it before, but the, the DPA mediation program is an excellent program, um, a, a great uh, restorative justice program, and real credit uh, to the mediators. Hope they know the commission appreciates their, their great work, and Michelle Tice can pass that along. Thank you. Um, one other suggestion I could make um, is that one of the issues that we have with the cases that are pending with the chief is that there are some cases where an officer has, uh, there are multiple officers, and one officer in a particular case will have a case pending with the commission, 
and the, there are other officers who will have a case pending with the chief. And sometimes um, the officers that have a case pending with the chief are kind of strung along until the commission is done with the case because uh, the thought process is that the commission's case should go first. I'm not necessarily sure that that is the best practice, um, but that is something we can also explore uh, moving forward to help the backlog. Um, you know, there are going to be some situations where the outcome of the case before the commission is going to bear on the outcome uh, for the officer waiting for a chief's hearing, but, but usually um, it doesn't because they will each have their own separate set of facts that they're facing and their own separate allegations and discipline. Uh, so just, just a thought. Clarification. Go ahead. Uh, I just want to clarify, it's the chief's hearings are being done by deputy chiefs and up right now, right? So assistant chiefs as well, chief? The chief of staff uh, does not do chief's hearings because they actually are part of the recommendation chain of command. And because our chief of staff has been off uh, for several months, so that takes basically a deputy chief out of the mix as well. So that's, that's part of our issue, it's, uh, the people that... And the AC for operations, I'm seeing here. <laughs> or, or if somebody's, you know, involved in a case, of course, they have to be recused, so we have, that's always a factor. I mean, that never changes, but um, it, it does impact us when we have to move people around because people are off or we have vacancies, do those type of things. So the chief of staff doesn't uh, hear cases, but the assistant chief, the other assistant chief does? Yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the operations assistant chief does, uh, you know, in a perfect world they wouldn't for many reasons, but, but they do Okay, because we don't have a choice. When people are in acting positions, so you, if you have a, I know we have a few acting deputy chiefs that are, that are commanders and they're not, uh, are, are they able to hear by virtue of their acting or is that not permitted? Well, the MOU uh, says deputy chiefs, so we really need to address that issue and I'm, you know, whenever this gets to the commission, I, I know it has to go through the process of potentially because it deals with discipline. I would imagine that would be a bargainable uh, issue, but. Is that something you think would help speed things along if, uh, if in acting capacity they could hear hearings? I think it would, um, yeah, it, it would give us more capacity, yes. But because I, it would both give you capacity from commanders that are acting as deputy chiefs, and as theoretically, if we expanded to commanders, it would expand to captains acting as commanders? That, that could happen as well. So, I mean, those are, those are considerations that we really have to, have to consider and think twice about, because right now yeah. the captains are not in the disciplinary process. So, I mean, those are things that we have to consider as well. But definitely just expanding the, the pool of, of um, personnel who hear those cases and doubling it, basically, when we add the commanders, um, that will go a long way. Okay. I, I think that it would seem to me that expanding it to commanders makes sense. And I think since commanders are already then in that process, allowing them when they're acting as, as deputy chiefs, that that makes well, I think the issue with that is, is this. I mean, the, when you're assigned a case, if you're sitting in the seat when the case is assigned, it possibly could work, but they're assigned those cases, and then those cases, unless they retire or you know, for some reason are not at work, 
it's their responsibility to handle that case. So um, I guess you could do it that way, but I don't know if that's the most effective way because I think that causes some instability. Okay, thank you. Acting uh, Director Rosenstein. Yeah, I just wanted to just follow up on that. Um, the charter vests the power to discipline in the chief and the police commission and allows the chief to delegate uh, the authority to discipline to commander level. So I don't know, you know, I don't know if that, if the acting, you know, captain acting as a commander would be a violation of the charter. That's something we would probably have to explore, but just pointing out that um, it's, it's a commander issue. Uh, commanders and up per the charter are allowed, um, but there's the separate issue of any MOUs that SFPD may have with the POA with respect to discipline. I don't know about that. Yeah, Thank I think that the, the, the MOU states deputy chiefs, not the MOU, I'm sorry, the DGO. Commissioner Yanis. Thank you, <clears throat> President Elias. Uh, and I just want to clarify for the record that my understanding about the uh, mediation program the DPA uh, oversees is not a restorative justice program. I've been doing a lot of work on this uh, restorative justice elements, um, which include a harmed person developing a consequence. And my understanding of what happens at DPH is, does not include any disciplinary action, any consequences imposed upon an officer um, as requested by the harmed person that makes the allegation, is my understanding. Uh, well, I know that restorative practices uh, colloquially is a big umbrella um, of practices that are to make the person whole. So generally speaking, that is what mediation uh, wants to do is to make the officer whole and make the complainant whole uh, and give everyone some satisfaction out of the process that they have been heard, that they've been uh, and their issues have been addressed or some assurances that they will be addressed in the future. So to the extent that maybe it's not a clinical, psychological DSM, you know, explanation of restorative practices, I, I don't know, but I think generally speaking, um, the mediation program is based on the idea that two people, multiple people come into a room with a mediator and sit down and discuss things that they could not have discussed in the field, that uh, were too tense to deal with in the field. And the key is for everyone to be heard respectfully, to have a, an opportunity to, to say their piece, and uh, come, if, if, it, if it results in some type of resolution where there are promises made, great. If not, if two people just want to be heard, then that's what it is. We try to tailor each mediation to what uh, the individuals involved uh, want and need in order to come out whole. Right. Um, so there are elements of restorative yes. justice, principles of the restorative justice process, Correct. but it's not a restorative justice program. As I just wanted to clarify that for the record. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, one follow-up question. You indicated that an MOU regarding written reprimands, what effect will that have on the amount of cases, the lingering amount of cases, 87? Was that the concern? I'm sorry, say that again? You had indicated that there was an MOU regarding written reprimands that you didn't think was a good idea, and is that because it's gonna increase the number of cases that are already delayed? 
So um, there is an MOU between the POA and the SFPD that uh, allows SFPD to hire retired deputy chiefs to hear discipline matters where the discipline intended is written reprimands. Um, in we, we have, we believe that the intention of creating this MOU, or we've been told at DPA that the intention was to break, bring down the numbers um, of, of discipline cases that are currently pending. And based on our anecdotal experience, um, it does not seem to be doing that because in the last year, I would say, I think there were only two cases that have gone that way. And in one of the situations, um, it was uh, a little bit hairy because there aren't really rules regarding the application of due process and was, you know, th there were things that were not very well thought out, so the, the, the process didn't move forward. Um, and so based on what we see, we don't think that that is an effective way to alleviate the backlog. Um, secondly, I think we do have some concerns, as I said before, the charter vests uh, discipline power with the chief and with the commission and the ability to delegate on behalf of the chief is very narrow. Um, so we're concerned that by hiring retired deputy chiefs, uh, that is an improper delegation of authority. Um, under the, under the, uh, we, we wouldn't have a problem with it except under the MOU, they are the final arbiters of discipline. So in all the other cases when deputy chiefs sit as presiding hearing officers for discipline cases, they write a recommendation that the chief can then either accept, reject, or incorporate in some way into his final discipline decision. But with respect to written reprimands and the retired deputy chiefs and this particular MOU, those deputy chiefs have the final decision making power and it is my understanding based on what I, based on discussions that I've had and based on reading the MOU that the chief can then no, not override their decision. So we're a little bit concerned about that. So the concern is twofold. Number one, is it a violation of the vestiture of disciplinary powers? And number two, is it really working to uh, reduce the backlog? Well, uh, my understanding, and I just received the MOU regarding this, the written reprimands that you're, you're talking about, but my understanding is on the discipline matrix, written reprimands aren't appealable. Well, that's a whole nother issue. <laughs> I have heard both sides uh, so they, from police, from the legal department, um, and I have read cases on both sides of the, that fall on both sides. Because, because written reprimands have the potential to affect um, uh, punishment promotion. in the future, promotion, et cetera, it could. So I understand that argument. Um, and that's something that we, you know, we can all explore a little further from the legal perspective, but on, on an immediate perspective, uh, you know, immediately to address the issues, those are the two uh, biggest concerns that DPA has. Chief? Yeah, that, um, that issue was actually brought initially before this commission based on litigation. And so that was uh, initially a, a negotiation that DHR was involved in uh, it became a department associate and POA negotiation to finalize the process. 
but I, I don't know if any of the sitting commissioners were were here then. I don't I don't believe so because it might have been right before you got here when that issue came up, Commissioner uh, President Elias. But that definitely was a negotiated based on uh, litigation on officers having a right to appeal even on reprimand with discipline. So that was a long process that ended up being a, 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 an agreement between the department and the POA. But um, and I think Ms. Preston, Lawana Preston, Director Preston is here. I think she was the one that was part of that, that process, the meet and confer process. But um, Well, why don't we, Chief, yeah. why don't we add this to Friday's agenda? And then if there's a litigation memo, can you please provide it to me? 2018, maybe in late 2017 when that was an issue. Okay. So let, let's do that and then we can figure out when to or if we need to agendize. Okay. Uh, Sergeant. For members of the public, they would like to make public comment regarding line item four, DPA director's report. Please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line okay. item five, commission reports, discussion and possible action. Commission reports will be limited to a brief description of activities <coughs> and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to counter any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Commission president's report, commissioner's reports, Commission announcements and scheduling of items identified for consideration at a future commission meeting. Thank you. I wanted to apologize as well for being late. The traffic was so, it was crazy today. It took me literally 43 minutes to get here, which it normally takes me 20 normally. Um, but I wanted to recognize International Women's Day and dedicate today's meeting to that cause. We celebrate today to bring attention to women's rights. Um, and the important issues that we as women face, which have included the gender equality, violence against women, and reproductive rights. And we really are here today thanks to the amazing women who have paved the way for us to be here um, by bravely, bravely taking on uh, these fights so that we can be here today. So I would like to dedicate, oh well, I'd also like to um, dedicate and thank those women and dedicate today's meeting to the strong, powerful women who take up this fight every day. Um, so again, my apologies for being late and I wanna say happy International Women's Day. Uh, Commissioner Walker. I totally concur. Um, <laughs> happy International Women's Day. Um, I also want to take this opportunity to reinforce our appreciation that the, the SFPD has committed to 30 by 30 um, to get more um, women on the force and women in leadership. I know we have uh, um, a lot of women who are really leading the way in our, um, in our department, including um, Chief Faraday there. Um, thank you. Um, I want to just update that I have gotten updates on the DGOs. Um, the department and DPA are working together to resolve the um, edits, and um, I'm happy to, to report that. But I also um, I met with, um, in talking uh, about the patrol specials issue and the, the collaboration with sort of private security on how to include that, I met with um, some of the remaining patrol specials who are active as well as some who have history and um, our city attorney to sort of get a sense of the feeling of where our legal um, position is um, 
with those beats. There were, were originally like 84 different beats where they had licenses and, and um, managed, and there's, they're down to one, but I wanted to sort of get a sense so that we can present to the commission what the status is of those things. Um, and then next week I'm going to be meeting with um, department representatives to discuss some of the issues that have been present there. So I'm really excited about that. On that note, I've been working a lot, talking with the community benefit districts who um, in general have been supportive of wanting to work more with what they do and our department in um, especially around merchant corridors in the commercial areas. Um, and many of the uh, CBDs are actually doing what they can to bring more foot traffic to the businesses in the district. And I went to the uh, Tenderloin CBD meeting where they were discussing the terms of their, um, their program where they're really going to be highlighting the businesses in the district and with a website and maps and guides, and it looks to be a way of bringing more traffic. So I wanted to make sure um, the chief had a couple of these. Um, maybe um, Diana um, Orochi, um, who can do some outreach on that. But it might be a way to really talk about um, coordinating in the in the what we're talking about with the alchemy groups, the ambassador groups, our police ambassadors, the reserves, uh, whatever the future is in trying to encourage the partnership with the private sector. Um, you know, I know that we're all discussing and um, so there's some tense moments about the police budget add-on that's happening and um, we all know that everyone in our community is talking to us about, you know, trying to make sure people are safe as well as, you know, a, um, a fair-minded approach to law enforcement. So um, there's a lot of interest in working together, and I think it's really an opportunity. These efforts, it seems to be what the CBDs are focusing on citywide. So as we have opportunities with some of these, these um, nonprofit groups, the ambassador groups, the potential for, for um, I mean, I, the, the issue with the ambassadors is really about the fact that they usually end at around seven. And in many of these areas, some of the issues of, of non-presence of folks on the streets is, is more overnight or certainly later into the night. So um, it might give us an opportunity to really uh, try some programs and see what happens. So I just wanted to make everybody aware. It seems like a really good idea. So um, I also have been meeting, um, I know you weren't here about this, but the technology of um, working with the body-worn cameras as well as other cameras. Um, we're in the process of those meetings and um, hopefully have something just to talk about with the commission to see if that's of interest to the department and DPA and the, and the commission. So um, that's my story. Thank you. And again, happy International Women's Day to all of us, including these two women on the commission. Thank you. Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, President Elias, um, Chief Scott, and Acting Director Diana. Um, I, I want to give an update on the social media DGO, which uh, we received the request for an extension, which is going to now go into the 120 days. So thank you for submitting that in a timely fashion. I know that um, 
President Elias received that, um, and uh, we're looking forward to just, you know, generating a good body of, of folks for that work group. Um, the DGO revision of 701, the uh, juvenile uh, DGO is, is progressing. We're making a lot of, um, we've made some, some, I think, important additions to, to the policy, and we continue to expand um, the department's understanding of, of how juvenile um, you know, development is very different, and, and our approach to working with young people should be very different. So I'm really looking forward to the April 12th uh, joint commission meeting where we will have some experts on best practices around this so that we have a good, um, you know, robust conversation about the direction that we should be taking. Um, I did want to ask a question, Chief, around um, the the Shotwell strategy, or sorry, the Cap Street strategy. Um, you know, I really want to thank AC Lassar for going out there and, and spending the night, and, and I know that the changes have had an impact on that, you know, section of Cap Street where um, a lot of the prostitution was taking place. Uh, but I had, as that I had asked um, AC Lazar when he was here. Um, what are we going to do about containing the issue from spreading into the areas of the neighborhood, which is actually happening already, right? Um, I am close to the 16th Street corridor, and basically all that activity is now somewhere between 16th and 18th Street on the weekend. So I would love to know what the ongoing strategy would will be. And in addition to the enforcement elements, are we also working to try to, uh, you know, detain some of the folks that are driving this, not necessarily the consumers, but the pimps, right? Is, is there a strategy there that has uh, resulted in any outcomes, positive outcomes to contain that issue from um, spreading? So that's one question I have. And the second, um, is I just wanted to get your thoughts on, um, I forgot to ask this last week, but uh, towards the end of February, there was an assault on 16th Street of uh, an employee uh, of, a, I believe it was a Head Start program, early in the morning at BART Station. There was a press conference later on in the week uh, where uh, some leaders in the mission community requested more foot patrols. And I know that there was legislation to en enact and activate foot patrols, but yet we, we haven't seen that in the mission. So I wanted to get a sense of what um, is holding or interfering with our ability to put foot patrols, uh, at least on the BART stations. We know that there's a lot of traffic. We know that that's where the majority of incidents are taking place. Um, so I'd like to get a sense of, of what the strategy is going to be there. Um, so that is uh, uh, one of the questions that I have, and I guess I do want to itemize uh, or agendize for a future conversation maybe in May or June. Um, given, uh, you know, there was a rally around Sanctuary City after Dorsey's proposal to the board, um, and there was a big turnout, and there is still this question of, what our position is at SFPD when it comes to cooperation, collaboration, or any type of enforcement of immigration or um, any perception of our cooperation in those elements. And so I do want to have a conversation about policing immigrant communities in general, specifically the Latinx community, but I know that this issue impacts not solely the Latin community 
API communities and many other communities. So I do want to agendaize that for May, but I would like to get your thoughts on the two questions around uh, um, Cap Street prostitution containment strategy and the request for foot patrols on 16th Street uh, by the group that uh, had a press conference there a few weeks back. Yeah, uh, the, the Cap Street, let me ask, answer the Cap Street question first. The, the biggest, well, one of the most important things that we have to do is, is maintain the consistency. Displacement happens, it, it frequently happens. It happens in the Tenderloin, it's happening there, apparently, and it happens in other places, particularly for those types of pervasive issues, you know, prostitution, drug dealing. You know, we can clean a corner and clear a corner, but there's an enterprise that is uh, fueled by greed and profit that's not going to go away just from us cleaning the corner. So that's something in, in policing that we always have to anticipate. And really the key to that, just let me not be long-winded, is making sure that when a problem moves, that we move with it. But we have to hold the ground on the area that's been cleaned up. And that's where the challenge lies because there's only so many officers to go around which gets me to the second thing with the footbeats. We have had footbeats on 16th Street. Uh, we have had struggles maintaining that presence. Um, so part of what we're trying to do to mitigate that and make the situation a little bit better, you know, is the overtime, the backfield that we do. First of all, we need to fill the sector cars. That's first and foremost. But when we have those filled, also our goal is to, as, as consistent, consistently as we can fill those footbeat uh, locations that traditionally we've had footbeats at 16th and, and Mission. Um, but as staffing goes down, it becomes harder and harder to maintain that consistency. So we do have an agreement with the POA on terms of uh, the mandatory overtime that we've been imposing for a while now um, to have some consistency with that process. It, Hopefully, we'll alleviate a number of questions, I mean, problems, including fatigue. The officers are working a lot right now. But that's what we have to do to just bridge those gaps. So we hope that this new agreement, which we just, the agreement has been on the table. We had to work out some kinks. But uh, this week, it actually was the first week of implementation of this, this mandatory overtime will agreement. And we'll monitor and tweak it when, when we, as we have to. Um, so in short, the key is consistency. You know, we, we staff foot beats and then we don't. We staff them, then we don't. And I'm sure the public sees it. it. It's very hard and painful because we'll make ground and then we lose it. So 16th and Mission is, is one of those areas. There's a, there's a lot of challenges, as you know, uh, up and down that block. And it's not all, you know, serious crime, but there's a lot of quality of life issues that we get complaints about, street vending and those types of things. Uh, drinking in public, narcotics usage, which we're on that as well. We have to be consistent. That's the bottom line. And um, what we're trying to do is make sure that we hold ground when we have some successes in terms of addressing these concerns. But unless we're consistent, the it, it comes right back, which is what we see in the Tenderloin and other places like that all the time. So we're going to do our best, uh, given our challenges, to be more consistent in our, our deployment with this new overtime agreement we have. Thank you, President Elias. Um, just a couple of quick updates for my report. Um, act, uh, as you know, I've been serving as audit liaison to the DPA, so I have a quarterly meeting 
um, with DPA's head of audit, Steve Flaherty. They'll be next week to get the status of audits. I know DPA has been providing uh, updates on those processes as well. Uh, so thankful for that. Um, last week, uh, as Chief mentioned, I accompanied uh, Assistant Chief Dave Lazar um, to a community event on Cap Street um, uh, in the evening after commission. It was, I, I think it was great to see the improvements there and to hear the positive feedback from the community. I think it was also good that um, the captain of the station, Captain McEachern, had the midnight shift go there uh, sort of en masse after lineup, so got to meet members of the community that, that they'll be serving. Um, and so I was able to attend that event as well. Um, a couple of updates on DGOs. As Commissioner Yanya said, um, we are making significant progress on DGO 7.01 uh, on juveniles. We have our second to last meeting on that department general order um, tomorrow. Uh, so looking forward to wrapping up the working group process and advancing it. Um, I know she has begged me to not, but I, uh, Chief, I really want to commend um, Commander Moran. Rachel Moran has done a truly incredible job. I was joking with her that I'm going to ask her to be an executive sponsor on more DJOs, and she's like, please no, but uh, I'm, I'm officially asking. I, I know President Elias has said through a lot of these processes, we discover policy writers and we discover uh, hidden talents, and uh, Commander Moran has been uh, such a tremendous part of that, of that working group. Uh, we're also moving forward on DGO 10.11, body-worn cameras. Uh, a short extension to that was also uh, timely requested and granted by the commission, in part because 701 was so productive, it ran into some of the scheduled meetings for 10.11. So looking forward to uh, working on those uh, as, as well. And that is my update. Thank you, Commissioner Benedicto. Hopefully you'll have better luck at uh, securing these gems, because when I ask the, the chief, he always says no. <laughs> All right, Vice President Carter Overstone. Just a quick update for me. I met today with DPA and the department to discuss DGO uh, 810, First Amendment uh, surveillance activities. Um, that working group is going to be moving forward. I think we've tentatively set the uh, start date for, for late March, um, and we're discussing um, groups that, that – my, groups and individuals that might be invited. I know Chief's going to review our recommendations and propose a list and make a decision on that, but look forward to um, joining those working groups and, and revising um, the, this important policy. Commissioner Yee. Uh, thank you very much there, uh, President, uh, President Cindy Elias. I just want to be on the record to recognize that today is uh, International Women's Day. I was able to um, what a <laughs> honored uh, two uh, women commissioners that we have here, President Cindy Elias and Deborah Walkers. I want to also thank the chief on his 3030 initiative in 2017, uh, 2017 where he put forward. Um, compared to the national, to the city of San Francisco, uh, we have sworn officer in the national at 12% and the city at 14%. And the leadership position in the national is only 3%. And I would say congratulations to our chief and moving forward to 17%. So we are headed in the right direction and at 30-30. So I also want to thank uh, the, your command staff and the members and also DPA uh, members, uh, the women that serve us and keeping us uh, safe in the public eyes. And I want to also thank uh, 
our commission staff um, on that too. Thank you very much. And also the city attorney. Uh, so we should have uh, International Women's Day every day. I know. You, imagine how productive we'd yeah. be. We Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Commissioner Yee. We we'll appreciate that. Um, Sergeant? For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item five, commission reports, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line item six, discussion of March 2022 MOU regarding SFPD joining the FBI's San Francisco Violent Gang Streets Task Force at the request of the commission. Discussion. Thank you. Who's presenting on this? Assistant Chief Lazar. Welcome, Assistant Chief Lazar. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much, President Elias and Vice President Carter Oberstone, members of the Commission, Chief Scott, Acting Director Rosenstein, members of the public, and members of the Department. I'm Assistant Chief David Lazar. I oversee operations for the Department. This evening, I'm just going to briefly go over the, um, the high-level elements in a very quick and brief way of our memorandum of understanding between the San Francisco Police Department and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So the San Francisco Police Department has a memorandum of understanding with the FBI specific to address violent gang enterprises as part of the Violent Gang Safe Streets Task Force with a stated purpose since 1996. Our latest MOU was agreed to on March 24th, 2022, signed by the Chief. So the mission of the Violent Gang Safe Streets Task Force is identifying target for prosecution criminal enterprise groups responsible for drug trafficking, money laundering, crimes of violence such as murder and aggravated assault, robbery and violent street gangs, as well as to intensely focus on the apprehension of dangerous fugitives where there is or may be a federal investigative interest. The task force enhances the effectiveness of federal, state, local law enforcement resources through, well, through a well-coordinated initiative. Uh, as of today, there are five full-time task force members assigned to the community violence response team and two part-time officers. Their work location is actually SFPD work location. In other words, they don't sit up at the FBI, but they actually work in their office with their colleagues in the CVRT. And they're supervised by both the department and the FBI. There's a dual supervision in terms of the cases. A couple of quick uh, highlights I'd like to just share with the commission in terms of the MOU is that our continued assignment of personnel to the task force is based on our performance. The department is briefed on the cases being worked on at the task force by the chief or designee, it's usually the lieutenant of the community violence response team. All law enforcement action is coordinated and cooperatively carried out. An important point I wanna point out to the commission is that SFPD officers assigned to the task force will abide by all SFPD policies, procedures, and applicable laws. To the extent that there is a conflict, SFPD officers shall follow policies and procedures or withdraw from that por portion of the operation that raises the concerns. All investigative records are maintained by the FBI. Officers assigned to the task force shall wear body-worn cameras consistent with SFPD policies and procedures. To the extent that there is a conflict, and SFPD officers are advised to de deviate from the BWC policy, officers shall withdraw from that portion of the operation. 
On a case-by-case -case basis, determinations are made whether to prosecute federally or by state. So the important point I want to point out here with regard to the cases is that the majority of the cases are presented to the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. In other words, a member, an SFPD member is a member of the task force, but they're also primarily a San Francisco police officer. It's primarily presented to the DA's office. However, cases are reviewed by the AUSA when the defendant may be the driver of violence, have a lengthy criminal record, is a repeat offender or violence associated with weapons. In other words, on a case-by-case -case basis, um, the AUSA will take a case. If it doesn't fall within that category, most times the AUSA would, doesn't, not interested in, in looking at it. And then the FBI subject to funding pays the overtime for task force officers. And then last is that officers are able are to abide by current use of force policies, including less lethal devices. Um, the last thing I want to say is that, and of course I'm open to questions and, and to answer whatever you may have, but uh, there's a lot of language about gangs in here, but we don't in the San Francisco Police Department use the gang terminology anymore. You know, we talk about, especially with our the work we did um, through our California Partnerships for Safer Communities, we use group involved. That's the language we use. And under the chief's leadership, we got away from the gang task force. You know, we called that group of officers the gang task force for, for a very long time. Now it's the community violence response team because it is essential that we utilize the community to help us solve these issues and to work more collaboratively with them. So you may know that we've changed the, the name of, of that unit. All right, so that concludes my presentation, but I'd be more than happy to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you, uh, AC Lazar. I have a few questions. So um, I'm gonna start though with some of the highlights you gave and then I'm gonna go into my questions. You indicated that the officers that participate in this program adhere to the body-worn camera policy. Um, the officers, and you say this five full-time, two part-time, right? And, yes. And these are, are these, these are officers that are part of the CVRT? Yes. Team. So they're presumably not patrol officers, meaning they don't have a uniform like you, right? That's right, they are in plain clothes. So if they're in plain clothes, how are they adhering to the body-worn camera policy when plain clothes officers don't wear body-worn cameras like patrol officers do? Yeah, so as of, well, a couple things. One is that we put into the, well, I say we, but the chief was very specific about putting into the MOU that the officers have to have body-worn cameras, but more importantly, um, the plainclothes officers now in our department are wearing body-worn cameras, and I know we've been working on a, uh, an order re regarding plainclothes policy, and we'll have a, a greater conversation about 5.08. So that is really what we are requiring our plainclothes officers to do now, is to wear BWC, and there are some limited, very limited, narrow exceptions to that. Well, I mean, I've seen the, pol the proposed order and the policy, and I don't, I don't think there is quite as limited as you say, but let me turn back to this. In these officers that are participating in this program with the FBI, are you saying that they have body-worn cameras even though they're plainclothes and that they're using them while they're engaged in this, um, in these operations? Is that the, what you're saying? That is what I'm saying. That is the rule that we have put into an MOU and have agreed to. And so, yes, that is what I'm saying. And then, you know, all, all members um, at the rank of below captain are issued body-worn cameras, so they, everyone has a camera. 
Right. But they are required to wear it because that is what we agreed to do. And then now we're saying all plainclothes are wearing body-worn cameras with a very limited exception. And we're close to rolling out our plainclothes policy all throughout operations. Okay. Um, and so who monitors whether or not these officers that are participating in this operation are adhering to the body-worn camera policy? Because there's a very high number of body-worn camera offenses amongst patrol officers. And I can't, I want to know what it, what it is amongst the plainclothes, specifically this operation, because not all plainclothes wear body-worn cameras. Yeah, so Lieutenant Scott Biggs is the officer in charge of the community violence response team. These members report directly to him. He is, it is his job to make sure that they're complying with all policies and procedures as it relates not only to their, their work as San Francisco police officers, which these are all sergeants, except for one is an officer who is part-time. Um, and then the lieutenant is fully aware of this MOU, what the elements are and what it says and what the chief has agreed to. So how many violations have been reported thus far? And out of the five full-time, you're saying four are sergeants? Five, the five full-time are sergeants. Okay. And then one part-time is a sergeant and one part-time is an officer. And I can explain what a part-time task force member is. Okay. And you indicated that there were the five and two were based on performance. What does that mean in terms of the need? Um, what I mean by that is that if the FBI or the department believes that those members aren't performing like they should. They're just not entitled to be on the task force. They have to do, they have to do what's required of them. They have to do the work and it's not a right to be on the task force. It's really the option between the FBI and the chief to decide whether or not someone maintains their status on the task force. Thankfully, we, to the best of my knowledge, have not have, have had issues with members on this particular task force. And how is that, so when you say that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, how is that measured? How do we know that they're, I mean, what are they supposed to be doing? Making arrests? I yeah, mean, is it performance based, based on the number of arrests they c conduct, the number of investigations? Well, there is no essentially a metrics or there's no specific number that says, well, if you do X amount of work, then you maintain in good standing. Essentially, are you doing the work that's required of you? And that is, is investigating gang-related criminal enterprises related to weapon violations, robberies, homicides, attempted homicides, everything that I spelled out in the, in the face of the mission of this MOU. Like, are you doing that work? Are you successful at that work? And if you are, then you are, you remain on the task force. You're doing the work. And so I, my other question is, you know, and reading this mission statement, how do you know the success? Like, how, what are the metrics for success for this program? Because it doesn't seem like you would be able to measure the metrics other than to say, oh, we made arrests. But that doesn't seem like a measurement. Well, one way to measure it is successful, successful apprehensions, successful prosecution, um, lack of complaints. There's probably a few categories that we could look at and say, okay, it looks like you're doing a good job on this task force because you're, you're doing what you're supposed to do as opposed to, well, it looks like you're getting a lot of complaints or it looks like you're really not apprehending or you're not solving any cases, maybe not a good fit for you. 
Many of these members have actually been on this task force for many years. We've had one on the task force for several years, and they all have their specialty in terms of the work that they do. So they were on it before 2022, before this MOU was signed? Some were, yes. And, but, but I guess in all fairness, I mean, this MOU was brought to light a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I wasn't aware that the department had signed an MOU with this, so I'm not sure in terms of complaints you know, people would be aware of that. Yeah. What 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 was the question, dear Commissioner uh, President? Well, he indicated that like the number of complaints regarding this uh, MOU, like that, would be one of the metrics for measuring success. And I'm just saying that I don't think that the public was aware of this MOU um, prior to a couple weeks ago in a newspaper article that was published, which sparked the us agendizing this item for discussion. Yeah, so the, you know, you have a list of all of our MOUs and there's several pages of MOUs. This, this task force, to, just to reiterate what Assistant Chief Azar said, uh, many of the investigations that we conduct with our, our federal partners are long-term investigations, you know, criminal and groups. And to the question about what's the measurement of success is to carry through a successful case. Um, when we're working in these task force configurations, these are usually not just random uh, one-off type of, of operations. It's really identifying groups that are involved in you know, crimes or series of crimes, and then that's one measurement of success. This MOU was just signed, so the measurement of how that will work will be determined with time, but this is not a new concept in terms of this, this whole task force. I think the first MOU was in 1996 with this, this type of configuration. But I do want to address the, you know, not necessarily the article, but the point that you made about the commission just finding about this. You know, I do have the authority to sign MOUs as long as it doesn't. J, the JTTF administrative code that was, that was cited in an article really pertained to the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which we have not been a part of since January of 2017. This MOU, I want to be very clear, uh, has nothing to do with the JTTF or that type of work. So I, the, I guess the inference, insinuation that this was a workaround is something that I want to put to bed right now because it wasn't. Um, there was, we followed 3.1 in my opinion in terms of this MOU was not an MOU that had anything to do with the JTTF or anything like that. And it also, you know, we definitely put a clause in the MOU about body-worn cameras because we didn't want what has happened in other cities in task force configurations. There was a time when the federal government did not allow body-worn cameras in these task force operations. We would not participate under those conditions, so we wanted to spell that out and make it clear that our officers, if they're involved in these and they're doing enforcement actions, that they will wear their body-worn cameras, so. Right, and I, there was an article, and I, you had said um, one of the reasons that the JTTF you had pulled out, or one of the concerns um, or problems with it was the fact that officers were working closely with the FBI, FBI officers, and they create this relationship with them, and they have a working relationship, and it's difficult to be in a position where you're working with someone every single day and you have different objectives and different sort of rules you have to follow because uh, FBI 
officers uh, adhere to their set of rules and the department, San Francisco adheres to theirs. And sometimes those set of rules aren't, that um, they differ. For example, immigration and how we deal with immigration. And so you had indicated that it puts officers in a difficult position to be in if they're in a position where, um, you know, they're not allowed to do something, but their federal counterpart is. Um, and so that was one of your concerns you had raised with JTTF. So I would imagine that the same scenario would be applicable in these situations, given the fact that these officers have to work closely. Um, you have no jurisdiction over federal policy or law. So, you know, I mean, how, how is that addressed? It's addressed in the MOU. Our officers follow city and county and SFPD policies. And if there's a conflict, the MOU states that our officers follow our policy. Speaking of immigration, we don't, we, we have nothing to do with the federal government when it ter when in, in terms of immigration policy or enforcing immigration policy. But there's other difficulties that arise, and the one that comes to mind is the 2017 where, there, where the SFPD was working with the federal government on Operation Safe Schools. And in that instance, there was millions of dollars spent and thousands of hours by SFPD in this operation. And what came to light in federal court was that there was a practice of racial profiling and biased policing that resulted in the ACLU filing a civil lawsuit um, and the federal uh, prosecutors dropping several cases because of these allegations. And so what safeguards have you put in, because I read the MOU and I don't see any, but what safeguards are there other than just saying pull out um, for SFPD so that we don't have these kind of instances again? Well, I, I don't, so the 2017, first of all, that case did not happen in 2017. I was here in 2017, it was pre-2017. Oh, right. But it the, came to light in 2017, 20. Well, yeah, and the bottom line on that is if, there are allegations of racial <laughs> profiling. Uh, clear, you know, our, our policies clearly cover that. If there are allegations of racial profiling by SFPD officers, our policies clearly cover that. And I don't think there's not- But that was a prohibited uh, practice I mean, when it first happened as well, Chief. I mean, I don't think that the, the department well, was condoning I mean, racial profiling or biased policing. So the question of an MOU and what safeguards that we put in place, we defer to our policies, and if there's an allegation of racial profile and it's proven true, the officer will be disciplined. I mean, and, and so no matter MOU or not, that's against our policy. So if your question is what safeguards are put in place, the safeguards are our officers, when there's a conflict, and I think that was your original question, defer to SFPD policies and if the federal agency that we're working with does not agree with that, our officers will pull out of that operation. They won't participate in whatever they're doing that puts them in conflict with, with our policy. So that is the agreement um, that was put there for a purpose to address part of this issue because we don't want that to be a situation where officers are having to decide, do I go with the federal policy or our policy? It's, it's stated. Well, okay. I I'll come back to that. My other concern is the, what you raised, A.C. Lazar, is the fact that the FBI rec uh, maintains the records. All records are maintained by the FBI. And I wonder, again, what provisions or safeguards there are for the different guidelines that happen between state and federal court. 
when it, especially when it comes to confidential informants or witnesses. So in state court, uh, usually when the police, the police report will indicate there's a confidential informant or the source of the information. And uh, attorneys can file motions to reveal or disclose information so that because there's a constitutional right to confront your accuser. In federal court, that practice is different. Um, and some, most often, um, witnesses uh, or confidential informants um, aren't disclosed to uh, the defense attorneys until the eve of trial, which is way later. It has a different practice. So how, if we're a city uh, agency and we are in state court and the records, you, you know, you're working on an investigation and it's charged here in state court, but you're not able to turn those records over to um, the defendant, it seems like that's problematic to me because you're in state court, you indicated that the district attorney is charging these cases in state court, but you as the non-owner or keeper of the records aren't able to provide this information which is in contradiction to state law and procedure. So I think one thing we need to clarify is the cases that are presented to the DA in San Francisco that are charged are the cases that we hang on to. In other words, we will clarify whether or not the FBI has a copy of those cases. I don't believe so, but we can double check. So the cases that the, F the, cases that the AUSA takes are, is cases that we're working in partnership with the FBI to resolve. But again, the majority of the cases that these task force members are working on, the AUSA doesn't, they'll say it doesn't apply or we don't want them or we're not interested. And then these officers or sergeants or investigators take the case right to the DA. They, they you know, get, try to get the case charged. They try to get an arrest warrant, what have you. They, those are our case files. We have those case files in our filing system, in our department, in the offices that they work in. So I, I say that to say that I don't know if, it, it, I don't know exactly if the FBI takes everything we're working on, even though it doesn't even apply to them, and hang on to it. I would venture to say no. Um, but in the MOU, we'll it says that their documents, which identify, tend to identify or may identify um, inform, confidential informants or witnesses, may be released without prior FBI approval. So how, how can you have the documents if the MOU is saying that these documents cannot be provided to the SFPD unless they approve? So they're not really your. I mean, you, you know what I mean? They're not really yours. Yes, I'm saying for the cases that go that get presented to the AUSA. But that's, that distinction is not in this MOU. I understand. So that's where we need some clarity on that. I, I, I don't, right now, I don't have the exact answer. The chief may, but, you know, in other words, there's a, the majority of the state cases, they don't probably have copies of, of any of that. Because the way the MOU reads, all the investigative material and documents are really belong to the FBI, and you only get them if they give you permission. Uh, so I, I don't think it's, like, it's not... It doesn't make sense that you're saying, oh, well, this is our case file, we have these documents, when the MOU is saying that any documents or investigation materials that are, um, are, that are derived from these operations belong to them, and they get to decide who releases them and, you know, and to whom they're going to be released. Yeah, I understand. We'll have to get some clarity on that. Well, I just want to get clarity on the question. Is the question about informant files or the question about just the sharing of investigative files? Both, because it has a section for the confidential human sources and for the other investigative reports and records. So there's two different sections. So the way this 
works is if the case gets filed at, in, at the state level, at the DA's office, the investigative material that's needed to file that case will, will be with the case if it gets filed at the state level. I mean, there, there has to be a degree of cooperation for this to work. Um, some cases, as uh, Assistant Chief Bazaar stated, some cases are filed at the state level. It's a, it's a, it's a collaborative effort. I mean, if, if you... But that's not what it says. I mean, I understand, you know, you, you're saying what it is in practice. A.C. Lazar is telling us how it works, but that's not what this MOU says. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not clear on your question. If you're, because I thought your question was, if a case goes to state court and there's an informant involved, then maybe I misinterpreted what you said, that that informant information doesn't go with that case. That is part of my question, but my more broader question is the fact that these records and documents that are produced as a result of this investigation or during this investigation do not belong to SFPD. They belong to the federal government. And it's the federal government who gets to decide when and where to release these documents. And my, that's my question, which is, what about cases where in state court, these certain documents would be released, whereas in federal court, they wouldn't be? And so the MOU indicates that this is the property of the federal government, and you don't have a say in when, you, when and who you get to release these to unless they allow you to. And so what you're saying to me and what A.C. Lazar is saying is, oh, in practice, they give us, we get to use these documents that they're ours, they're in our case file, and we present them to the DA to charge. But that's not what the MOU says. Yeah, so I think, yeah, I believe we're saying the same thing. No. If, the, if the case is needed for a prosecution, let me, let me back up for a second. Yes, the MOU and what we agree to is that the FBI owns those files. It's, an FBI, it's a federal task force. Right. Our officers, our task force officers are deputized. It is a federal investigation. So they own those files. In order to have cases successfully prosecuted, they share the files. They get to say on what's shared. If, they, if there's a bigger picture and they don't want to compromise some, you know, something in the case that's bigger than the state prosecution, yes, they can say we don't agree to this. That's, that is their call, and that is what we've agreed to in this MOU. But I will say in the spirit of this, because I've seen these things for a long time, it's a good thing when we collaborate to address these types of significant issues that one or the other can't do on their own. So, yes, that is true. The FBI owns these records. That's what we agreed to. Uh, in the case of a prosecution, if the case actually gets filed by the state, they will share the files. They will do what's necessary to, to make sure that that case gets filed. But, they, but that's their decision. They have to agree to that. Right, but it's not in the MOU is my, is my point. I mean, you, you can well, say the spirit. Well, no, the what's in the MOU is they own files. So, oh, right, right. right, but what I'm but, saying but, is we, they get to decide when to turn it over, not you. They, they do not, get to decide. Not the prosecutor. And that's, that's, that is, yeah. let, me, let me answer your question clearly, President. Yes, they do get to decide, and we are okay with that because it is a federal case. They are, it's a federal case. Okay. Um, I have a few more, but I'm going to yield my time. Vice President Carter Overstone. Thank you, President Elias. Um, thank you, Assistant Chief Lazar, for the <laughs> succinct presentation. That's always appreciated. Thank you. Um, wanted to pick up on this issue of information sharing. So um, President Elias, Elias talked about information sharing as it relates to confidential informants. Paragraph 25 relates to information sharing more, more broadly. Um, and also Chief's response to an earlier question about how discipline would be handled if uh, 
if a SFPD officer violated a SFPD policy in the course of a task force investigation. So paragraph 25 seems to say that the FBI also gets to say whether any task force information is turned over to anyone outside the task force. And so I'm wondering how this would work in the disciplinary context where either IA or DPA needs information. You know, there, there's a, a citizen complaint or IA starts investigation. They say we need task force information to assess the complaint, but the FBI seems to be in a position to be able to unilaterally just say no. Do I have that right? Well, uh, the, the, the question you have is correct uh, in terms of, in terms of would, would the FBI turn over information to the DPA or, or IA in the event of an allegation? And, and I'm going to say you'd have to make a request. I'm not going to speculate as to what they would do. The chief would have a little bit more insight on discipline on that. Yeah, we would have to get approval for that information to turn over from the FBI to be turned over. We would have to get approval. Okay, so so I guess earlier President Elias laid out a situation where there is, um, you know, a violation of our bias policy, and your response was, well, if that happens, we would handle it. But it seems that th this is a serious kind of impediment to handling it if the FBI can just say, well, you know, we support discipline, but we kind of don't want this information outside of our bubble. It kind of immunizes officers from having not even discipline, but just an investigation into whether there was a violation of policy in the first place. I mean, is that right? Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not clear on your question. Okay, let's say there's a citizen complaint against an officer in the task force. DPA investigates it as it is required to investigate. In the course of that investigation, uh, DPA decides that it needs certain records, perhaps body-worn camera footage, and it makes a request to the department for that information. Under paragraph 25, it seems the department wouldn't be able to hand that over because it would be task force information. And if it's task force information, the FBI has to green light it first. So then if the FBI says no for its own reasons, then we just can't investigate misconduct of officers that are on the task force. That's well, my question. Yeah, so the FBI would have a right to say no under this MOU. The case would be told. And whenever, whatever the reason they say that they said no for, when that has been resolved, then that investigation will go forward. So I, I think the issue, and I'll address it as clearly as I can, is this. In order for these task forces to work, there, there has to be um, cooperation. And yes, the FBI could say no, because if it's, who, I mean, whatever the case is in that investigation that would cause that type of, of response, the case can be told if for, for whatever, however amount of time that this criminal investigation is ongoing. Um, however, they do have the right to say no per the agreement. They do have the right to say no. Right, and I guess I want to be clear, maybe it's worth making that trade-off because we get so much benefit from the task force, but I do, I, I guess it does jump out at me that I mean, Chief, you say it could be told, but 
I think it could be impeded indefinitely forever um, if the FBI just decides for whatever reason it doesn't want to hand it over. Um, that does seem kind of extraordinary. Um, did, if I may, if, just course. if I may add, Commissioner, um, one of the things I'm hoping we don't do is speculate that they would not hand it over to the chief's point about the cooperative spirit of working in partnership. If they knew that one of our members, um, it was alleged that they engaged in some sort of misconduct or violation of the policy, we would make that request. I can't stand here today and say, and they would absolutely give us the record, but I'd be surprised if they, they did it and they, they don't want problems on their task force. Are, are we aware of, um, I, I take your point well taken about hypotheticals, but so are we aware of situations where either IAD or DPA has asked for task force information and they have not received it? Not during. Perhaps you should, may I answer that question? Well, let me ask a question. <laughs> not during my tenure. I am aware of a, of a case uh, prior to that where that was the case and the case was actually told, um, but not during my tenure. We have not, as far as I know, we have not had that problem in the six years I've been here. Please, so, please. Shall I address you? Sure. Okay, so um, we have had two cases recently um, and uh, DPA shares your concern uh, specifically with paragraph number 2526, but also with paragraph number 62, um, all of which came into play in two cases that we have with uh, where officers from SVRT were involved. Um, we, we see issues, uh, jurisdictional issues, because in those particular cases, those officers were conducting law enforcement activities outside of San Francisco. Uh, we saw issues, uh, allegations of, obviously received allegations of misconduct. We were, not be, we were not ultimately able to complete our investigation and come to a conclusion regarding whether the officers uh, committed misconduct or not because it took us eight months of fighting to get some of the records, some of the records we did not get and we were advised by police legal that the basis for not getting those records was because of FBI involvement uh, and other reasons. And third and most importantly, um, there were, the, 62 is a very interesting paragraph because uh, there is a consortium, a collaborative of some sort called the Northern California Regional Intelligence Center that has a ton of military grade surveillance type equipment that is available to for use by the FBI. Members of SVRT are also able to go and loan those different that different type of equipment um, out and use it in their um, in uh, their investigation. DPA has grave concerns about that because there is no it, it's unclear whether I don't know what's in that in that uh, bank, so to speak, right? Are there weapons there? Are there surveillance things there that we are not entitled to use? Wait, as, uh, as so are, we, is this, are these allegations that you're making or is this speculation? Because you're going down the road here. First of all, if there is an allegation or some thing that you're investigating that we're using some equipment that we shouldn't be using, the fact that I'm hearing this in, 
an open police commission session is, is, is troubling I, I don't me. know what's in there. That's what I'm saying. I don't know, and I don't know how we would measure, because they asked whether or not there are disciplinary cases. So in, in that was one of the things we found out in the course of a discipline case, that there is this, this, area, this place where SFPD officers can loan out equipment. Um, so, so that was my concern, and we were not able to get information about that equipment in our case. The other thing we were not able to get was certain questions answered by the officers during their interview because they invoked uh, the uh, FBI MOU. So just to be clear, this mm -hmm. is just, there was an allegation that our officers were using some equipment? Correct. And so is that being investigated? That was investigated, but because of this MOU, we were not able to come to a conclusion with respect to whether it was or was not proper conduct. We ended up closing the case as insufficient evidence because we, with the information that we had uh, and the possibility of other information out there that the officers were not willing to share with us by invoking this MOU, uh, we could not come to a conclusion based on a preponderance of the evidence one way or the other. Yeah, I, I think that's, a, to me, that's a larger issue in terms of, because just to be clear, the insufficient evidence cases do not get presented to me. Correct. But in that situation, my ask, and I'll ask this since you brought it up publicly, is that gets raised to executive level. Because if there's an allegation that's happening, we need to get to the bottom of it, in my opinion. And it doesn't change the MOU, but that needs to be, that needs to be investigated. And this is the type of thing where, I think it's incumbent upon us as well as our federal partners to make sure that these types of things, that the information is, is provided to let us resolve these types of issues when they come up. And first I'm hearing of it. I know you call police legal and I, I hear that, but. Right, I mean, there's, we can't elevate every case to, to your level, but I appreciate that and we certainly will be in touch and, uh, about this specific case. Um, but, the, but that doesn't change the issue, like I said, that DPA has with respect to paragraph 25, 26, and 62. And, and okay. that is a practical, real-world situation, because up to this point, we've been talking about speculation. What would happen? What would happen? Well, we know what would happen, and that is that, uh, that, it, that, that this particular MOU is an impediment to DPA obtaining information in discipline cases in a timely, expeditious fashion and obtaining all of the evidence. So uh, we, we have concerns, is, is the bottom line. If I may add to the Chief's point, however, if you give us an opportunity to get information for you, please give us the opportunity. It may not get to the Chief's level, but it can come to our acting assistant chief over chief of staff or anybody at the command staff level to make the calls and say, hey, look, we're trying to get this. We know what the MOU says. This is important, and we will do that. And Definitely. I think and like it, I said, I, like I said, there were other issues involved in the case. Um, okay. But the point is that, you know, the FBI MOU appeared to be an impediment. Okay. That's helpful. I, I mean, that's helpful to know, and I think this might be a subject for broader conversation since there apparently was at least a couple instances where Paragraph 25 was at play. Uh, I, I wanted to ask about uh, both Assistant Chief Lazar and Chief Scott both referenced paragraph 18, which basically says, you know, if there's a conflict between federal policy and, and local policy, officers will follow the policy of their respective agencies. Um, 
it, it seems to me that in practice, this is harder to do. I think it says you, if, if you, an SFPD officer is really in a tight situation, they just need to withdraw, quote, withdraw from that portion of the operation. Um, I just wonder how this works in practice, because if everyone's following their respective agency's policies, how does that work in all of the situations that require kind of coordination of groups of individuals? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we had the barricaded suspect DGO, where it's like, you know, the officer, the sergeant, the lieutenant, they each have like six things they've got to, you know, do really quickly in order when they arrive to the scene. Um, I'm recalling from some of our um, discussions about uh, reviewing when there was use of force. I, I think we have when you dis, when you shoot in ERIW, there has to be a cover officer with a firearm to cover the officer shooting the non-lethal, um, the non-lethal weapon. So just like there's a lot of examples of when groups of people have to conform to the same policy to carry something out, and it's just not practicable to have everyone doing their own policy. It just would be chaos. Uh, do, 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 I mean, again, this is a, another hypothetical, but do, what, what is your kind of response to that? You know, my, my, my feeling on this is, or not even my feeling, what I know to be true is that we have been partners in this task force for, for such a long time. Going back to 1996, we've had members that are currently doing the work that have done this for several years. The communication with the FBI on how we do things, like the FBI knows our policies well because we've communicated about use of force and de-escalation and how we do things and body-worn camera and immigration and all the things that are important to us. And um, our, office, our, our task force members know how important it is that they follow policies, they disengage from the plan, et cetera. And I'm gonna say that the FBI doesn't put us in a lot of situations where there's a conflict because they know what's at stake and they know the rules and all those other things. Um, I've had conversations with the leadership at the uh, at CBRT and they're very serious about making sure that their members are following these policies. Again, especially around immigration, very clear about that. Right. So, but, you know, but, and I know we're just talking hypothetical here, but right. But you know, the MOU does have, I think, three paragraphs on use of force, um, forty-nine to fifty-two, I think. So it does contemplate that task force members will be involved in those types of situations potentially. And you know, our use of force policy, I am, I imagine, is very different than the FBI's use of force policy. I, it doesn't seem. It doesn't seem inconceivable that you you would have an officer in a situation where they they can't possibly follow both federal and local policy, and also it's not really realistic to say, well, you can just bail out in the middle of, a, a, um, you know, a dangerous situation. Yeah, you know, I, I, or you know, withdraw as the policy yeah, as the no, MOU says they should. Yeah, do. I understand your question, and and so uh, I'll say this in addition to what has been said. The use of force is. A separate issue. I'll address that that last. But in terms of most of these operations, there's there's pre planning. I mean, not most of them. When when task force officers go out on an investigation, there's usually some planning. There there is planning if they're going to do an enforcement or an arrest. And this is where these briefings happen as to what 
the rules of engagement are. Our officers are required to follow our policy, even in the use of force. So I, use of force, to me, is not the issue, but what could be an issue is the dynamic things that can occur during an operation. For instance, and this is you know, some real life examples here, in the case where um, immigration, and this is what uh, Chief Lazar had mentioned, immigration somehow pops into the issue. We have pulled out of those operations. If, if, if it's a criminal investigation, um, child pornography, and we do, we do some, some joint operations on child pornography and, and those types of things, we're there to investigate the criminal operation. If, if it goes to a situation where the non-criminal uh, part of Homeland Security gets involved, we're out, we pull, and we have done that. So there is the ability to pull out. In, in a dynamic situation where, let's say, a warrant is being served, first thing is our officers have to follow the policy, so their body-worn cameras will be with them and on. If the FBI or whoever we're working with uh, cannot agree to that, we won't take part in that. Let's say task force officers are going out for an interview and something happens spontaneously. Our officers are required to follow our policies. There should not be any question of what the FBI needs to do. So I guess the question becomes if both, because this has happened not in San Francisco while I've been here, but I've seen it happen in law enforcement, where there's multiple agencies involved in a use of force, also involved shooting, uh, which is one of the issues that brought us to the body-worn camera discussion. This happened in another state, but the bottom line is our officers will follow our policy in those situations, and if the federal partner can't agree to that, they will not participate. And so before we serve a warrant, if they say we can't allow body-worn cameras at this warrant service, then we won't be a part of that warrant service. So that's the way it will work. If, you know, if somebody's going to lunch in their task force, and a bank robbery goes down, our officers have to follow our policies. The FBI people have to follow their policy. It could happen, yes, but we are required to follow our own policies. Okay, thanks, Chief. Um, so this, this MOU wasn't, wasn't presented to the commission before it was entered into, and is it the department's view, I, I think it, what, it was signed before the new 3.01 became effective. Is it your view that if this was signed after the new 3.01 became effective, you would have to have presented it to the commission? Well, it's our, my view in that the requirements of, you know, um, of course, anything related to the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which, which was the administrative code that was discussed. Right. Now, setting aside the administrative code, because that, that clearly says if it's JTTF, you have to present it. But I just mean under the 3.01's provision about uh, the commission approving MOUs that affect commission policies. You know, say if this came up, if this was signed in August of 2022, do you think you would have had to present it to the commission? Uh, if it was signed in August of 2022? Meaning after the new 3.01 was operational? No, because I don't, I don't believe that it modifies the commission's policies. Um, the, or any task force, not just the FBI, that doesn't modify a DGO or amend the DGO, change a DGO, or it's not JTTF related. I don't believe, well, the policy says those don't have to be presented to the commission, so I, I don't believe that it would. Okay, I th okay, I think that's maybe a, a larger conversation, because I also wonder if there's a close call about whether something 
affects a commission policy, who gets to decide whether it needs to be presented to the commission, but maybe we'll leave that for another day. My very last question is, uh, do you think that this would affect op SFPD officers' ability to notify a supervisor as required under SFPD policy in a given situation? I just, there's so many policies that require officers to notify a supervisor under myriad circumstances, but if it's a task force operation and there's such control on task force information, d d does this MOU in your view affect um, supervisory notification requirements? In, in my view, no. I second that, no. Uh, just because, as you know, in the MOU, it says that the task force will keep a, the chief of police or a designee informed as to the cases and the work. Those sergeants are in constant communication with their lieutenant about everything that they're doing. If they have it in, if they have a use of force that needs to be investigated and all that, they have those conversations with the lieutenant. Like they, they even work inside the SFPD. They're always with their, their boss. Great, thank you, those are all my questions, thank you. Thank you, President Elias. Uh, thank you, Chief, and thank you, Assistant Chief Lazar. Um, I, I'm, I was very interested to hear from uh, Acting Director Rosenstein about some of those insufficient evidence cases that I think maybe didn't rise to, to the attention of the Chief and Assistant Chief, and I think that uh, it sounds like there's gonna be an offline communication, but I really encourage the parties to DPA and SFPD to, to talk about those specific cases and about you know a process to escalate similar things um, you know to the the command staff level and even to the commission because you know that was something very interesting that we all learned <laughs> all at once and so I, I think we we, we want to see what those implications are as we consider the continued involvement. Uh, I have a couple of issues I want to talk about. First, I want to talk about. I know um, talked about paragraph 18, which says that SFPD officers assigned uh, will abide by all SFPD policies, procedures, and laws. There are a couple of provisions later in the MOU that may or may not be in conflict. So I just want to get the, the, the chief and the assistant chief's understanding. So notwithstanding paragraph 18, paragraph 47 says the use of other investigative methods and reporting procedures in connection will be consistent with the policies and procedures of the FBI. It's your understanding that even though that says that, paragraph 18 would supersede paragraph 47 where those policies conflict? Yes. Yes, I agree. Okay. Turning to paragraph 48, undercover operations, it says all undercover operations will be conducted and reviewed in accordance with FBI guidelines and the U.S. Attorney's guidelines on FBI undercover operations. It's the department's understanding that paragraph 18 supersedes paragraph 48 where there's a conflict? It, well, just uh, I'll answer that categorically. Any conflict with SFPD policies, our members will abide by our policies. Any conflict. Okay, I mean, I, um, and so that, that, that would include paragraph 48? Yes. Okay. And I, I, the reason I want to go through these, I, I appreciate that your position is any conflict, but you know, in these are like somewhat ambiguities in the contract, and contract construction can be tricky when there are ambiguities. And so I think it's good for members of the public to hear sort of with these specific provisions how you see the ambiguities um, playing out. So the next one is paragraph um, 53, um, which discusses personnel designated um, 
to deputations, and they'll be sworn as federally deputized special deputy United States Marshals with the FBI securing the required deputization authorization. So again, anything under the guidelines that govern special deputy United States Marshals, it's a department's position that it went in conflict, paragraph 18, would supersede this? Yes. Okay, yes. and then yes. the last one in this line of questioning is paragraph 54, where it says deputized personnel will be subject to the rules and regulations pertaining to such deputation, administrative personnel policies imposed by the participating agencies uh, will not be voided by deputation of their respective personnel. So it's the department's position that where there's a conflict, paragraph 18 would also govern over paragraph 54? It, yes, that is my interpretation, and I believe that second sentence actually covers that, because it actually says that. Is this upper renewal at any point, or is it, is there a, a, an end date that should be renegotiated up for renewal? This, um, let's see, go to the end of it, because duration is uh, paragraph 80 through 82. Okay, so it's sort of open-ended unless there's a notice of termination. Right. Um, do you know when the last time, I know we, we, we have the 1996 version, um, do you know when the last time was that there was a version we negotiated between then and the, the sort of second most recent one? Okay. This one for this, mm -hmm. uh, I think the only one before that was 1996. Okay. I mean, given how many of our policies are from the 90s, it's not the most surprising thing to learn. Okay. I, I think that makes sense. I, I think a concern I have and why I called out those four paragraphs and conflicts is, and I'm glad that, uh, that both chief and assistant chief agree that you believe paragraph 18 would govern in those circumstances. I wonder what would happen if I asked the FBI the same question as to which of those provisions would govern. And if their answer is different... That's, that could present a problem. So I, I think that if, even when there's an opportunity to renegotiate this, if it is the case that it's the department's position that paragraph 18 would supersede these later sections, that should be something that should be in writing in the MOU so that you don't risk getting different answers from different agencies yeah. on that. And I, and I, I will can't speak for but I can speak for what the, the conversation was um, about policy conflicts in that was that was a must for us to even be involved in this. Is that our members follow our policies, and really, what what caused this thing to be renegotiated was the body worn camera issue. In 1996, there were not body worn cameras, and that's been an issue in other you know places, other jurisdictions where there was conflict, and body worn cameras were not used in critical situations, and we we could not do that. So that's really what caused this to be renegotiated for, for this time. And, um, we, you know, there was some insistence. So I, the answer that I got was the same that I'm saying in this hearing is that the FBI has agreed to this. So I, don't, I really don't believe that their answer would be any different because that was part of the discussion and the negotiations. I, I, absolutely. And, and I think my, my hope would be the same. But as we saw with JTCF in 2017, administrations change, FBI administrations change, and they might have different AUSAs change. And I, I think one thing we've heard a couple times tonight is encouraging stories about the anecdotal cooperation, which is good. But I, I think all of the, the attorney members of, of the commission will agree that if you want something in the contract, you should it's better that it's in the contract than sort of just through, through practice and procedures. So I think that that's why I, I wanted to go paragraph by paragraph and why I would encourage um, whether it's who owns the data, which, you know, President Elias asked about, or information sharing about discipline cases. You know, you, um, 
even if we have good practices, we want to, we want to see them in the contract. Um, continuing on the theme of conflicts uh, vice, and picking up a little bit of what Vice President Carter Oberstone said, it's, it seems like there are a couple of categories of conflicts that could arise. There are ones that sort of arise as you plan an operation, um, which you know just you, you would see in advance. There are ones that would that could arise in the moment in which you would ask expect an officer to, to use his you know, his or her judgment. You know, for example, if if directed, I, I assume um, you know if an officer were directed by an FBI agent. Deploy the carotid restraint, where we've we've gotten rid of that. An officer would, under this policy, decline to do that in the moment under the policy. So that's sort of the incidental um, conflicts. There are also conflicts that are you could predict, or that are sort of more systematized, right? Like for example, if consistently the FBI does drone surveillance, let's say, which isn't part of SFPD's uh, procedures. So. Uh, and I, I think that there's a difference between the conflicts that arise in the moment and the ones that are more foreseeable and systemic. And so has the department undertaken any sort of analysis on those larger conflicts sort of so that uh, the department or officers can be aware of what the sort of pitfalls that, that, that might create friction between, um, between the agencies? Uh, yes, and, and really the issue gets back to your fundamental question, I believe, is whether or not, and whether or not there's a policy conflict. Um, you, know, you raise a good question about drones. I mean, the, the reality is we have requested um, drones in search and rescue operations that we've been involved with, with outside agencies, because we don't have them. Um, and we've only done it on limited cases, but you know, we're looking for somebody who's, we believe, whose life was in peril and we've requested drones. So if the FBI were in that situation and they used drones, I think the real fundamental issue is, is there a policy conflict? And in that case, there's not, because we don't have drones. Um, and we don't, wouldn't request, you know, routinely that type of thing. Uh, but if it is a policy conflict, our members are told when they get into these task force, uh, when they're deputized, they have to follow our policy. If it's a question about something, as uh, Assistant Chief Azar, they're really good about calling and asking questions. Mm -hmm. The supervisors, and as I said, and this is not anecdotal, we've been faced with a situation where it conflicts with our policy. We pulled out. So I'm, I'm confident, you know, nothing's foolproof to the Commissioner's point earlier, but I do think that the structure is there for us to be able to. Um, handle whatever situation that might be disciplinary under this MOU, notwithstanding you know, what we just heard today from Ms. Rosenstein, which we will follow up on. But. Okay, that makes sense. I, I just think I, I would note that I, I think it would be proactive to identify like categorical areas that might lead to a conflict that you could prepare because of the nature, uh, the high stress nature of the job and things popping up. So if, if there was a way to sort of categorically identify, for example, our policy on First Amendment activities is much stricter, I imagine, than the FBI's. And so sort of, so that when officers are detailed to the unit, they, they sort of know what to look out for because it can be so circumstantial and, and incidental when, when, when these conflicts might arise to sort of look where conflicts might, might occur. Understood. Um, and then you said there were five full-time and two part-time officers. And so are those officers all deputized pursuant to paragraph 53? Or is, is, is it under a different system? Yeah, well the five full-time are deputized and then they have 
you know, access to the FBI and the building and the office and, and the spaces if they need to go there and have meetings and things like that. The part-time contribute to the work, but when they go to the federal building, they have to be escorted around. Uh, they don't have necessarily the, the full clearances that the others do. And they do, you know, they're the part-time contributors to the work that's going on. They have other work that they do. And so that's why we call them part-time. And so the part-timers aren't deputized pursuant to paragraph 53. They're just assisting? Yeah, uh, I will have to double check on that. I don't know exactly. Obviously, the, the full-time are. Um, the part-time, I'm not exactly sure. Okay. Um, they do work with the, they do work with the task force. Yeah, one of them is an officer, you know, and he does a lot of supportive work behind the scenes. So I will, we'll get back to you right away on that answer. Well, I will Maybe say the chief knows. If it's, if it's, if they're formally a part of the task force, they are deputized. Okay. There are some, some, in some situations, if funding allows, there's reimbursement and uh, things of that nature that officers, that the, the city can get reimbursed for overtime funding. Um, they have to be deputized in the task force in order for that to be triggered. Sort of on the opposite side of the DPA question we had, are the deputized officers also subject to discipline under FBI disciplinary procedures if they were to do something maybe that violated FBI procedures but didn't violate SFPD procedures? No, not administratively. FBI has no jurisdiction over it. What they can do is terminate the, the agreement that that officer is a part of this task force, but the administrative uh, part of that is it's not incumbent upon the department. We're talking about criminal violations. That's a different story. So, I mean, they can, of course, investigate criminally. You know. I, yeah, and I would add, I'm confident that if we violate something on the FBI side, we would hear about it. Like <laughs> they, they, they would not be happy with, with our member. Uh, and then we would have to make a decision about, depending on what it is, as to what we're going to do. Okay. Um, those were my questions about conflicts. I'd like to, to turn now to the question of, uh, you know, presentation of the commission that, that Vice President Carter Oberstone said. So this was abroad before uh, the new 3.01 went into effect. I'll, I'll note, I was looking at the, the text of 3.01, and Chief, I, I don't think it needs to revise a DGO or, or, or department notice to be under 3.01, just to impact it, which I think is a little bit broader. Um, uh, where 3.01 says an MOU which impacts a DGO or department notice that is governed by uh, or that is governed by a statute shall be submitted to the commission. I, I think I'd also say that even if it weren't required under 3.01 under full approval, I, I think it would be appreciated by the commission if it were presented for for just discussion and informational purposes. I think that. Uh, I don't think any of us like to learn about, you know, we, we, I think we all learned about this on, uh, in the press, and I think that's not, that's not ideal. And I, and I would hope that there were uh, a more, you know, a, a, a more free-flowing communication so that we could be updated that something is upcoming. Because, you know, even if it weren't for approval, like in the hypothetical, if this were presented coming up this year and the commission could discuss it, some of the questions that I had about ambiguities under paragraph 18, even if we're not voting on it, could be something that you could take back before the MOU was finalized under your prerogative as department head, or maybe adding language about disciplinary cases for DPA. So I think there's always value in getting additional perspectives there, and so I would hope that that would be 
something the, that the department would consider? Um, I understood. I, I would say this because I know this, maybe Commissioner Elias was on the commission when this first issue first arose in the commission. And we have hundreds, and we have hundreds, I don't know what the exact number is, but we have hundreds of MOUs. And in the, I guess in the sense that you said, I mean, all of our MOUs, officers, DGOs could be impacted because our officers have to follow those policies. There are MOUs where we want to emphasize th things like body-worn cameras. That was an issue for partnerships with the federal government, not to circumvent or amend the DGO, but to make sure that we do what's right for the city. So, I mean, if that's the sense of what impact means, then I, I can see that. But the the issue that I would ask for the commission, we have hundreds of MOUs and, you know, it, there's probably not a week that goes by that there's not some contract that comes across my desk for signature. How far does the commission want to take that? Because to me that gets into the day-to-day -day operation of the police department and when 3.01 comes back for revision, if, you know, the federal MOUs or what the commission wants to see, we have nothing to hide is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. You know, we. We want to do what we need to do to be able to do our jobs effectively in the city. And that does require partnerships, not just with the FBI, but other agencies as well. So nothing to hide, nothing to, to not uh, put in front of the public eye. But I would say this, you know, there's hundreds of, of MOUs and if the commission wants to see every one of them, I think that would be problematic. Yeah, let me be clear. I, I, I don't think, uh, I'm certain the commission does not want to see hundreds of MOUs. I don't, I, the commission does not want to interfere in the day-to-day -day operations of the department. I, I think that, like Vice President Cardoberstone said, I think this can be part of a broader discussion of how to strike that balance, because I think that the commission doesn't want to see hundreds of MOUs, but nor does it want, I think, repeatedly to have MOUs that are of interest to the public only sort of make their way sort of after it's, it's been reported on after the fact. And so maybe that process could be you know, identifying certain MOUs that are of significant interest. And when those are updated, those could be maybe even as part of chief support in advance. And then the commissioners can comment if they want, oh, here's the list of the MOUs in the next six months, which ones the commissioners want to see before us. Like, I, I think there's a, a middle ground that can be worked out because I, I, I do believe that the department doesn't have anything to hide. And I think it's a matter of striking the balance of providing updates that are of concern to the public, uh, but also allowing you to uh, smoothly run the operations of the department. Um, I, I think I'd also say that I know uh, that this, because this came up quickly, that I've been contacted by uh, several organizations and, and, and plan to take some meetings with community stakeholders. Uh, I'll, I'll keep the department apprised of that if they, if they want to join. But I think there is a lot of, of interest uh, in, in, this, in this MOU and this process. I bet if we still had telephonic public comment, we'd have a number of callers on the line. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I would ask President Elias that maybe in four months' time, you know, sometime in the early fall, we uh, we agendize this to to learn, you know, updates on the process about with with DPA or just in, in general, so we can keep uh, an eye on this because I think it is a matter of public interest. Thank you, Commissioner Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, President Elias, um, and thank you, fellow commissioners, for covering almost all of the uh, questions that I had. Uh, I will just, you know, for the sake of, of um, informing the, the public, um, reference number 18 again, and, and if you could just explain 
in real time, an officer that notices they're being put in a position to violate one of our policies, what do they do in the moment? What is the protocol? Do they call a supervisor? Do they convey that to the supervisor of the federal team? What, what does that look like in real time? I would say they do, they do all the above. They tell the partners they're working with, hey, as a reminder, our use of force policy says A, B, and C. They tell the FBI supervisor, um, again, this could probably happen in the briefing, but it, maybe it happens in real time in the field. They call their lieutenant and they say, hey, lieutenant, the FBI is talking about making entry. This is a situation where we normally do a surround and call out and we negotiate and we don't do a dynamic entry. There's a conflict. The lieutenant maybe gets on the phone with the FBI supervisor. They work things out. I would imagine it doesn't happen that often, but I think to your point, it could happen. And that's what we would do in that situation. Our, our office, you know, again, not to belabor this, but, you know, our members don't want to get in trouble for doing something they're not supposed to do because at the end of the day, they are SFPD officers first. Great. Thank you. And, and Chief, this is a, definitely an improved version of this MOU versus or compared to the one in the 90s. I mean, this is way more comprehensive, so it gives us a lot more opportunity to ask questions, right? Um, I'll, I'll turn to number 72. Uh, the non-disclosure agreements. Um, does everyone on this team sign these, including supervisors? Uh, yes, as it relates to the confidentiality of the cases that they're working on and the nature of the, the types of cases that they're working on. So in other words, that task force member can't just come back to the department and talk to colleagues that are not on the task force and say, I guess what, this is what we're working on, or right. this is what we're doing. We have to really maintain that and they get the clearance and everything. It's a really need to know and very limited amount of people that get to know what, what they're doing. And considering that there is, um, you know, the, the use of informants is, is very clearly delineated and the constraints around divulging any information around those informants is very clearly spelled out. I guess a hypothetical would be if a person, an officer, is on a team where there's an informant involved, but that officer steps out of that situation, but a potential community, community member um, experiences, you know, an outcome as a result of that operation, um, is there a concern about the perception of the department's officers engaging in some of the things that we know, you know, I'm not going to go back to COINTEL, but I know during Black Lives Matter, FBI had some very sketchy practices. Um, are we at all concerned about that? And, and, and when that perception appears, what do we do to resolve that? Well, I think we go back to what we're originally saying. I mean, and I, and I don't, I don't necessarily understand your question. I so, don't want to speculate on, so I think we we're have, doing hypotheticals a little bit. But. We, we have, I mean, we, there are always hypotheticals presented here in order for us to understand, understand. how we would deal with the situation. You know, and so we have one of, our, one of our five officers in an operation. There's an informant doing something that we would never, ever allow our officers to engage in. That officer opts out, but the operation is in place. Community members may have seen our officer, you know, in on that team or as a part of this operation. Um, there's fallout to that, right? Some of the fallout is a DPA complaint that maybe we don't get to investigate. Um, how do we how do we manage that? 
I think it provides us with an opportunity to explain to the public that we opted out because of Rule 18, we opted out and uh, we recognize right away that it doesn't fall in line with our values or our rules and as a result, we, we got out of it and we would just have to explain that and, and I would say even applaud the officer for making a good decision and knowing that they're following our rules and they're, and they're, they're tapping out of whatever they were doing. We'd have to explain it to the public. We have to be transparent to them and, and, and explain that. And I agree with you that I would applaud that officer, but that's a lot of pressure to put on that officer and the discretion there is, is insurmountable sometimes, right? We talked about different pressure situations. So I think it's something to, to, to further explore. Um, number 77 says that if there's a civil claim, uh, uh, what is it? As a defendant in a civil action as a result of a of or in connection with the performance of his or her official duties and assignments pursuant to this MOU may request to be certified by the U.S. Attorney General as a, as a designee, basically a federal employee, right? So while this procedure is taking place, are we losing an officer? No. So the task force is, you know, I think it was stated earlier by Assistant Chief Lazar, they, they actually work in our facilities. Uh, they are part of a task force, so it's investigation-driven. It's, it's mission-driven, whatever the investigation or investigations plural are. So we don't, these aren't, this is not the type of agreement where the officer is off somewhere outside of the city working on something that has nothing to do with the city. You know, we, there could be investigations that will lead us outside of the city on this, but this configuration of this task force, we're not losing an officer. Great. That's, that's. And, uh, Commissioner Yanez, if I could just go back to your last question too, because sure. I, I wanted, didn't get my hand up quick enough. In that situation you just described where some activity that's just unimaginable is happening with an informant, you know, we, we do have the clause in, uh, I think it's paragraph 81, it, that anybody, any participating agency can withdraw from this task force. And I mean, that's, our jobs in terms of if, we, if that comes to our attention, we do have the ability to actually withdraw from the task force if those types of things are happening. So um, it, there's too much at stake for us to allow, you know, any type of activity of that nature to put this department in, in jeopardy. So that clause is there for a reason because if something like that happens, we could pull out of this task force altogether. Great, good to know. Um, I do also want to echo um, Commissioner Benedicto and, and the rest of our commissioners who have spoken on this issue that I, I think it, it definitely um, needs to be looked at further. Um, I know that 83 gives us an opportunity maybe introduce revisions, right, at some point. So I hope that just having this conversation has brought to light some of the potential challenges of um, going into these agreements without having as you know robust a conversation as we are right now and uh but i because i strongly believe that anything that inhibits um our ability to discipline or to have a transparent process when the community brings up issues is definitely something that we need to have a conversation in this uh space around so uh whether it happens in june or whenever it does i think it, it definitely needs to be a priority uh, especially considering um, the 
some of the the questions that I have fielded um, after that um, sanctuary city rally that happened in front of City Hall as a result of the proposal that unfortunately had an image of you connected to it. And so the fact that there are uh, immigrant communities who are now having a question whether they will reach out because of um, these perceptions, I think it really behooves us to address this and, and, and get to the um, get to resolve it as soon as possible. Thank you. Yes, sir. And can I address that since because I just want to make very, very clear and I know you didn't mean the intent to say that I was connected to that because I wasn't. But just for the public, it was a stock photo that was placed with this article with my picture on it. Me or nor any member of this department had anything to do with that. So I just want to be very clear on that. Yes, and, and I, did, I didn't mean, I, well, I know, I know that the, just, the, I didn't the perception leave that is there because of someone's using your picture. But I, I know you clarified that in February. Thank you. Commissioner Walker. Thank you very much. Um, I just I have a, a, a couple of questions just about the functioning. Um, I would assume that these investigations, because some of the activity is regional. I mean, it, it seems to me from what I've been reading about the, the gangs that are engaged in, in trafficking drugs and even, you know, bike, st uh, you know, trafficking stolen bikes, that it isn't just in San Francisco. So do we... Does this task force also engage with other agencies, like across the bay and you know different other places where the activity goes? I mean, the, the the answer is, is yes. So we work with the the federal partner at the FBI, but then we're connected with other agencies throughout the Bay Area, and oftentimes uh, the CVRT unit does travel all over the Bay Area, pretty much on a daily basis working on cases that have a direct nexus to San Francisco. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, I know that I, I've, I think I mentioned this to the chief where I was um, watching as some cars were unloading bikes into vans and I mean, there was a whole operation going on and it was right next to the federal building. And I, I just was, the question I had, the question I asked, it to the task force. I, I said, you know, aren't we working with the FBI and these type of things? Because it's just, it, it really is, um, I mean, the depth of this goes sort of regionally. So um, I really appreciate the, the depth of the questions from other commissioners. I mean, I think that um, none of us are out there doing your job. So um, it's helpful to get the explanation. Um, I think that, you know, I, I also just want to reiterate to my fellow commissioners that speaking as a commission when you're speaking as an individual is really, it's, it's problematic for me because I think that we all are individual and have different positions on stuff. So I really appreciate the, um, the coordination between all of the law enforcement. Um, I think that these issues are huge. Um, these are at the sort of the, at the, the crux of what is happening on our street. So um, thank you for the deep exclamation, explanation of these and answering our questions. Appreciate it. Thank you. Commissioner Burr. Uh, thank you, President Elias. Um, uh, two points. That, um, 
when I looked at the MOU and, and uh, paragraph 18, I'm glad uh, Commissioner Benedicto asked the questions, but paragraph 18, to me at least, is the conflicts uh, paragraph. And the second sentence says, you know, if there's a conflict uh, between the two policies, the officer shall withdraw. And when I learned contract law, the specific governed the general, that seems to deal with the specific of the conflict. And so I'm glad he asked the, the questions to clarify it, but from, from my reading of it, as another lawyer, and I guess you'll get another opinion from uh, the other two lawyers up here, but um, yeah, I, 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 it seemingly was resolved with me. Um, but my, my other question is as follows. Um, this issue with the MOUs, is there any MOU with ICE with the city of San Francisco? No, with uh, immigration and enforcement, no. I mean, it, and with so, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, is there any, is there any MOU with them? I don't believe we have an opening. And let me go back to the Homeland Security ICE. So we don't have any dealings with ERO. That's the administrative unit of right enforcement and, and removal operations. Right, they're we, the actual people that I do this. These are the people that actually physically put them on the plane or on the bus to the border. Yes. Yes. And so I'm absolutely sure there's no, no MOU with them. With the criminal part, HSI, I don't believe there's an MOU, but I'll have to verify that. Um, I don't remember everything on the list. But we have worked criminal uh, investigations with HSI on you know, some particular cases like the, the child pornography cases that I was referring to. So there have been those types of um, collaborations with HSI on criminal investigations. We don't have anything to do with the other part of that. You know. That obviously, uh, speaking for myself, would interest to see how far that cooperation goes because of the uh, because of the San Francisco uh, uh, sanctuary provision. Um, with the regards to the airport, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, is there an MOU with them? I don't believe so. I will check the list. You know, I know the... Uh, if, if you could come back and, and let us know again, um, as the other commissioners have said, uh, San Francisco is an immigrant community, um, and uh, a, lo a lot of people would be worried about that. And then my last two: anything with alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. We do have a partnership with alcohol and to, uh, tobacco and firearms, and that's uh, through our Crime Gun uh, Intel or Investigation Center, CJIC which is um, a collaborative to reduce gun violence. Um, there was, is there an MOU? I believe there is an MOU with them. I know there's a, there's definitely a grant that we got grant funding to start this investigation center, but I will check to verify, but I believe there is an MOU with ATF. And, and finally, the Drug Enforcement Administration. I don't know if there's any current. I have to check, but I don't know if there's any current, but we have had definitely partnerships with DEA on some of our narcotics, some of our narcotics investigations. Obviously, um, uh, the ability, at least for us to see the MOUs, what I think, I'm again speaking only for myself, but I think it would interest, uh, I dare say, I, I'm not making much of a wager, that it interests uh, uh, the rest of the commission as well. Thank you, Chief. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, President uh, Cindy Eliza. I just have one question uh, with the, I guess the partnership with the FBI and the San Francisco police over these, uh, what, 25 years, they're about 27 years. 
Is there any substantial cases that result from this uh, joint operations that you guys have? There are uh, many. I mean, I can't recall them all, but there are many natural cases that have, have resulted, um, okay. not just with the FBI, but other agencies as well. Thank you very much, Chief. Thank you. Thank you. For members of the public who would like to make public comment regarding line item six, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line item seven, discussion of the draft memorandum of understanding between the San Francisco Police Department and the San Francisco District Attorney's Office regarding the investigation of serious uses of forces and in-custody deaths for meet and confer purposes with the affected collective bargaining units as required by law. Judge Walker retired, assisted with the negotiation of the draft MOU that the DA's office and SFPD have agreed upon discussion, as well as a discussion of the MOU between SFPD and DPA regarding the investigation of officer-involved shootings. Okay, Commissioner, that would be me. Let me grab my, my notes. Thank you. So, Commissioner, I'm, I'll try to be succinct on this. Uh, part of this is an update, and, and then there's a request that I, I'll be making to the Commission. So, an update. The MOU uh, with the District Attorney's Office, uh, we had an agreement and um, the judge, Judge Walker, and his, his assistant did review it. Um, after that review by, the judge, by Judge Walker, there was an issue that was raised by the district attorney's office that we agreed to, it's one paragraph, a couple of sentences in one paragraph, that we've agreed on language. So where we are is that just we want the judge to see that. Uh, and from there, there's an agreement. As far as the DPA part of this, and this is where the ask comes in, um, based on the feedback that we received when this was presented publicly, I believe all of it is addressed and some of the comments that were made by several of the commissioners I believe is addressed. However, because of the non-disclosure agreement that the district attorney, myself, and the, uh, the judge have on this issue, we have not been able to provide that draft to DPA. So here's where my ask. We were directed by the commission to present both MOUs together. What I'm asking is if we could forward the MOU for posting publicly, uh, the one with the DA's office, so DPA can get a look at it because I don't think it's, we gave some counter proposals to DPA and it's I think not fair to them to not really understand the context of what's driving those proposals, which is what's some of the changes in MOU after the feedback that we got. And so my ask is that that MOU with the DA's office, once the judge sees this, which I hope is I think in the coming week, um, be given to the commission, be posted so DPA can get it and then we can resolve because we are apart with our discussions with DPA on a couple of these issues, but I do think it would be very productive for them to have the MOU in hand so we can follow the commission's direction if the commission still wants that direction to present them both at the same time. It's just very hard for them, for us to, to do that MOU without them having the changes in the agreement with the DA's office. So that, that is my ask. So that, that's where we are on it. Uh, there were, have been meetings um, and I've talked to Director Henderson about this. So. That, that's my ask. If we can have that MOU given to the commission, posted publicly, DPA can get it, 
and then we can the commission can get both at the same time as as was requested Thank you. Signed an extension until March 31st. So you'll be obviously signing another one? Uh, unless we do quick work. I mean, if we're going to try to do this as quickly as possible. What, what I've done to keep the sense of urgency is I don't want to just automatically sign this extensions as long as we sign it before the MOU expires. Okay. But that's why we're doing them one month at a time. I mean, I, and we is, really is it your like Is it your representation then that? Um, once DPA sees a copy of the MOU that you've, the revised MOU you have with the DA's office, that that will resolve some of the issues that you're having with DPA on your MOU? Well, I can't speak for DPA of what they will agree to, but what I can say is I think they will have insight as to kind of why some of the changes are in there that, that we're proposing. Um, and we can talk through with the document in their hands some of what was said in the commission and why the agreements are now like they are. So we can kind of talk through that and see if we can come to an agreement. I can't guarantee that we will, but we're going to try our best from our end. But I don't think it's fair to them or us to do this without them having the MOU in their hand. Well, maybe I, the question was directed for yeah. DPA then. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that answering why is going to bring uh, DPA and SFPD closer together. Uh, let me explain why. So in November, um, we saw the draft MOU between the DA's office and SFPD that the public saw, uh, that's also uh, attached as an, uh, here. Um, and there is nothing in that MOU that, if, that should affect our um, sharing of information and access to information between SFPD and DPA because of the charter. Um, so I, I'm not sure that we want to or need to see the newest version or that it will be dramatically different than the one we've already seen. As background, um, we, when we got the November draft, um, and I went about the task of creating a, our draft MOU that was pre presented to SFPD. My I tried to mirror the language as much as possible uh, of the SFPD DA MOU. Um, and then uh, I think a week, maybe two weeks ago, we received, rather than a red line version, we received a a different draft of an MOU created by SFPD. And at this point, it is literally comparing apples to oranges. Um, and what it doesn't do is uh, what is most important to DPA, and I don't think that the DA's MOU will have relevance on this, is that DPA is would wants to memorialize the agreements that we have so far with the department with access to information that we currently get on officer-involved shootings. And access to information is in three basic categories. So um, if we cannot memorialize at least what we already get when we get to the scene and when we, ha when we investigate these cases, um, there really isn't any uh, quid pro quo to discuss any of the other possibilities. Let me give you an example. 
Uh, right now, we currently uh, have access to the scene provided by SFPD in, when, in an officer-involved shooting. So once the scene is secure, we are allowed to walk through. Extremely important for purposes of investigation to see and feel and smell and hear and look at the lighting before the, the scene is broken down. Uh, for example, there's a, there was a, a shooting that occurred on Folsom Street uh, and I responded and I was allowed to walk through the scene and there would have been no way for me to know how narrow the hallway was if I hadn't gone to the scene because the BWC did not provide that scope and level of information. It was, in, it was invaluable for me to have been there. Under the new MOU, and if this changes, yeah, that, that would be great, but under the new proposed language that SFPD and DA uh, have um, contemplated and the draft that has been presented to the public, it says SFPD will ensure that SFDA personnel have access to the scene. Then the proposal that we got from uh, SFPD, it says with SFDA's consent, SFPD will provide DPA personnel with access to the scene. That would be a step back for us because right now SFPD is in charge of the scene and SFPD provides us access. Additionally, it's disingenuous to say that SFDA with SFDA's consent because they are not conducting the initial investigation. Uh, from a practical perspective, the only thing the DA's office does in OIS situations is interview witnesses. In terms of uh, the physical evidence that is preserved and collected at the scene, that is done exclusively by SFPD. And I don't see that changing because as Chief Scott has explained in the past, the DA's office doesn't have capacity to control the scene. So to give up control of the scene and control of access to DP, from SFPD to DPA, where D, the DA would, be, would have the final say about who gets to walk through, it seems a little bit, it's, it's a huge step backwards for us, especially in light of the fact that there's, right now, only one agency that is mandated by the charter to investigate officer-involved shootings, and that's us. The other issue is that um, the language between the DA and SFPD says that SFPD on scene will brief the DA on all relevant information known at the time, including name, location uh, of involved witnesses, officers, name, address, location of civilian witnesses, all statements made by the officers, physical evidence discovered, medical condition of all injured parties. Clearly, we would need that information at the scene uh, in order to make a fair assess, fair and partial assessment of an officer-involved shooting. And so we asked for that information in the, in the draft that we provided as well. What we got in the draft that was provided by SFPD is DA, as the lead agency, has ultimate authority regarding access to criminal interviews of witnesses, officers, etc. The MOU that has been provided to us is silent about whether or not we would get the same type of briefing. I would like to point out that we didn't get to this in a vacuum. This was a, a rec these were 
things that SFPD ensured that we were provided with based on the COPS DOJ report and the CRI Collaborative Reform Initiative. Uh, recommendation 10.1 specifically said, and this is, this is how old the recommendation is, SFPD should establish formal protocols to ensure homicide detail, because back then there was no IIB, provide OCC, now DPA, and DA's investigator a timely briefing about facts of the case and formal walkthrough to the incident scene. If we can't memorialize something as basic as that in our DPA MOU with SFPD, or if that is controlled by the DA's office, there really is no incentive for us to enter into an MOU with SFPD in, and give up what we already get as a matter of course at the scene. The last thing, that there's two other uh, things that we are concerned with. We have fought and thank you, thanks to the chief, had the ability to watch through closed circuit television uh, capabilities at headquarters, uh, interviews of officers, interviews of witnesses that are done very content, almost contemporaneously to an officer involved shooting. So these witnesses are brought back to uh, headquarters and we are in one room with IAD and the uh, homicide, well now IIB and other, and uh, criminal investigators from ISD are in another room and we can watch the interviews that goes on. And for those of you that have done any type of trial work or any investigations, you will agree with me that nonverbal communication is just as important, if not more important, than verbal communication. And for us to lose the ability to observe the witness as the witness explains what happened in an officer-involved shooting shortly after uh, is a, it would, it would really thwart our ability to fairly, impartially, and thoroughly investigate officer-involved shootings. And uh, I'm concerned that that would be taken away from us because um, the SFPD's proposed MOU that we've received is silent on that issue. I specifically asked SFPD shall provide IAD and DPA personnel a place to contemporaneously visually and audibly observe the criminal interviews. What did we get? DA has ultimate authority regarding access to criminal interviews and witness officers. So if the DA's office tells us to take a hike, we have to take a hike. That's gonna affect our ability to conduct the best possible investigation that we can. Um, last but not least, and this was an ask, this was not something, like I said, that has been in the course of um, our investigation, a tacit agreement between SFPD and DPA. We wanted to memorialize once and for all the timely exchange of information in the form of records and documents. Uh, in other words, as soon as it becomes available to SFPD from SFDA, we wanted to get access to it as well and that has been shut down, period. So in our view, the negotiations that we've had so far are not quid pro quo, to, to, to quote you, <laughs> you know, contracts 101, it is a quid pro quo, it is a negotiation, 
somebody gives something up, somebody gets something, and then there's some, you know, both people end up being unhappy, right? But this, so far, what this has been is a comparison of apples to oranges. There's literally no incentive at this point for a DPA to enter into any type of MOU with the language that has been proposed because it not only does not give us any additional information, it actually takes information um, away from us. And if we enter into this MOU, we cannot in good faith tell this commission that we, could, we will continue to investigate officer-involved shootings promptly, thoroughly, and fairly. I understand that the idea is right to know, need to know, which is something that was discussed here. But uh, the practicality of it is that, that the DPA conducts its investigations contemporaneously with the criminal investigation. And that's how it should be, because memories fade, witnesses disappear. Uh, we need that critical information when it is available and when it is freshly available to all of us. Uh, we shouldn't wait for two, three years until the criminal case has run its course to then get the information that we need in order to fulfill our charter manda mandates. Um, what, what our biggest concern is, is that this is an end run around the obligations that SFPD has under the charter. Um, the charter section that had created a DPA, uh, 4.136J, and I will quote, specifically says, DPA shall receive prompt and full cooperation and assistance from all departments, officers, and employees of the city and county, which shall, unless prohibited by state or federal law, promptly produce all records and information requested by DPA. So leaving it up to the DA's office and not providing us with clear uh, information about why information is being withheld from us based on state or federal law would violate the charter. And because we are not going to get anything out of it, I, I think we are very far apart. What I would recommend is that we, uh, perhaps the commission could assign a commissioner to bring us close together um, or, uh, or maybe, uh, you know, uh, go at it again. I, I don't know, but. Well, let me, well, let, hold, hold, I, hold on a sec. May let, I? Let me, just, just, yeah. Just, I just want to reiterate, thank you, uh, Ms. Rosenstein, but it, it, you're actually making my point. I didn't come here to argue or debate who's right or who's wrong in this. What I came here is to ask for the commission's blessing to get the MOU to public space so we can give it to you and continue this process of negotiation. I can talk about everything you talked about, but I don't think that would be fruitful now because you don't have the MOU in your hand. Um, we are still willing to do that, and I would ask that DPA at least try to participate in that process. We're not trying to circumvent DPA, let me be clear on that. But we're also, there's some very specific things were said in this commission about independent investigations, who has control, who has access to information. And my take on that was that if the investigation is truly going to be an independent, as much as we can get to an independent investigation, um, then the investigating agency, which is the district attorney's office, has control over who they give this information to. 
I, I would ask that we have a discussion about that, and you may not want to know the why, but I think it, it at least is important that you look at the document and we can go point by point about what was said in the commission and how that ended up in the document, and then we can debate it. But I, well, the commission not, can do what it I mean, decides not, to do. I mean, not to cut you off, Chief. I think that would make sense at this point is let's uh, bring this back, let's agendize it so that you can get this information to the commission and the public. Uh, I'm going to ask Commissioner Benedicto to, um, I'm going to assign him as the commissioner to help facilitate these discussions since he's already the liaison um, and is doing work with DPA in terms of the audit so he can help move this along. Um, and we'll go ahead and bring this back uh, for, for the agenda. Yeah, <laughs> Commissioner, look, you know, the DOJ assessment made a big to-do about these two agencies <laughs> not being able to, to work collaboratively together. DPA does not have the document to even, very, very eloquent argument, but you don't even have all the information. So my ask is before you assign a commissioner that we try to work this out with DPA, this is a three-way agreement that is very complicated. And some of the asks from the commission complicates it even further. If we're going to give this to the DP, and not DP, I'm sorry, to the district attorney's office, then we give it to them. And I just want to point one thing out, because this was the point that brought some of this up about need to know, right to know. Our investigators will not get the information either. Practices around the country on this issue is the administrative investigation is usually uh, halted until the criminal investigation is done. We're doing that with the DO, California DOJ investigations. If you look at uh, Santa Clara County or anybody else is doing this, that's usually the way it works. It's very complicated to have three investigations going at the same time. So my ask, with all due respect, is that we try to work this out, and then if we can't, within a very short amount of time, assign the commissioner. But let's give it a chance for DPA and the department to work things out as the spirit of these 272 recommendations is called out. We don't need a referee on everything we do, in my and, opinion. And I, I, I think that th you will be able to, and I think I have confidence in Commissioner Benedicto and his ability to help facilitate conversations. I will note that, you know, and we talked about this, which is that your agreement with DPA is separate and apart from the DA's um, MOU, and that that was one of the sticking points as to why you didn't want to include DPA into the MOU you had with the DA and that it was better to do it as a side deal um, or a side MOU. And out of the three of you, I mean, it's right. DPA is the one that's mandated uh, legally to investigate these type of incidents. So I think that, you know, like I said, let's re-agendize this. We'll bring it back. Um, it doesn't, you know, we shouldn't be spinning our wheels if we don't have the other agreement because it's hard for us to um, articulate any concerns we have at this point. So. I mean, we'll follow okay. that. If the commission is directing that as a body, we will follow that. But I, I, I just want to voice my, um, my concerns that you know, we're having a debate with partial information which I don't think is fair. Actually. Right, no, I agree, I agree with you. And That's what I'm saying, let's bring it back. You're gonna give us the uh, agreement, you bring it back and we'll all have, we'll be, all be on the same page. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, President Wise. As I understand, you're also granting the, the Chief's ask of posting, as soon as it's ready, 
so the DPA and the public can see the version. And then at that point, like you said, you can continue to negotiate with DPA. You'll just be stuck with me in a room as well. So I, I, think, I think it is the ask that you've, you've, you've expressed, Chief. Well, with all due respect, I mean, look, we have so much work in front of us. Are we going to bring in a commissioner every time we have a disagreement? No, but this I is mean, an important topic. I, it is important, and, and I think it's, it's important to show that the DPA and the department can work these issues out without having a referee at every meeting. I mean, that's, I, I will follow the commission's direction, but I will voice my opposition to this direction because, I, number one, um, the whole way this, this happened is, is problematic to me. But, the, but besides that, you know, we're trying our best to sit down with DPA and work this out, trying our best. We have a district attorney that has no obligation to, to agree to anything with DPA except for what they've already agreed to. And we're trying to balance all of these three things. I mean, if issue after issue after issue, we get stuck and then we have to have, you know, a commissioner to, we need to put our grown folks pants on to do the work without having somebody looking over our shoulder. That's my opinion. No, and you and I have had several conversations about this, and I think we're uniformly in agreement. So, you know, I think that this is uh, one of those special situations that it appears that, you know, I think that there's a lot of positives that will come from it. So, Commissioner Byrne? Um, to uh, the city attorney. Oh, thank you. To the city attorney, uh, wouldn't it need a resolution for President Elias to uh, – assign a commission if there is not um consensus among the body then yes you you should have a vote then i um i make a motion now uh that um that we give the chief uh uh one month uh before the president assigns a commissioner so that the chief and um and dpa can see if they can work out uh this complicated agreement because as he pointed out, it's a tripartite sort of thing, two agreements with three different parties. Um, Second. I think we have a Robert's Rules issue that I don't think we can take a vote on an item that's not been agendized for any action. That's correct. Well, so we'll, we'll I believe this is, you're making a decision without consulting, uh, well, I, I yield to the city attorney, I'm sorry. That's correct. It's not on for action item, but in terms of um, not having a consensus in terms of appointing a commissioner, then yes, it would be have to be brought back for okay. a formal vote. So we'll okay. bring it back till next week for a formal vote. If if so, commission will approve this. We would like to attempt to continue to have this discussion while, until it comes back for a vote. Well, there's nothing preventing you. I mean, you should be having discussions with them. Well, DPA so, is preventing if they don't well, agree to it. Well, let me just be clear. Um, the problem, like I said, the problem to me, to us, seems very easy. If we can't even get SFPD to the table to agree to the agreements we currently have about scene access and about um, interview access and assurances that those will continue as is, and memorial those, memorialize those in writing, then I'm wondering what further, pa like, I guess what, I, what I'm worried about is what is SFPD going to offer to DPA in return for DPA giving up rights it already has and, 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 and d agreements that we've already made with SFPD? 
I, I, I can't understand, like that's, that's how negotiations work. Some people give stuff up, some people take stuff, et cetera. But we have been told in these negotiations, not only do you not get everything you already get, but you're gonna get less and much later. So that's why, I guess what I'm wondering is what is the incentive for DPA to come to the table and continue these negotiations if that's what we've been told thus far? Well, just shortly, because I know Commissioner wants to move on. I think the incentive is you have the document in front of you and at least we can work through like seeing access and things like that. We are, just to be clear, we didn't pull away from the table. So I would like us to continue this discussion so we can try to resolve this because the commission asked for both documents at the same time. And it's really hard to do that when we're working from a document that you can't even see. Well, with all due respect, we, saw, we, we have the one that's here, right? The one that has been published. And we have, I mean, I heard you say that there's one paragraph outstanding and I've heard several times informally individuals comment that this version that we currently have before us is not going to be materially different from the one that is, uh, that will be the finalized version. So Which that's are you talking the about version the that is currently before us, the, the one that was published. Oh, I think there are some significant differences of, uh, so, my opinion. Okay. Well, based, so, on, based on that, this is what we're going to do. We're going to encourage you to, or I'm going to encourage you to continue your talks with DPA. I'm going to encourage you, DPA, to continue your talks with the department. We're going to bring it back next week for a vote, um, and hopefully there'll be some progress within that time. Okay? Can we go to public comment now? At this time, the public is now welcome to make public comment regarding line item 7. If you have public comment, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Next item, please. Line item eight, public comment, on all, public comment on all matters pertaining to item 10 below closed session, including public comment on item nine, vote whether to hold item 10 in closed session. If you'd like to make public comment, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line item nine, vote on whether to hold item 10 in closed session, including a vote on whether to assert the attorney-client privilege with regards to item 10A, San Francisco Administrative Code section 67.10 action. Uh, motion. Yes, motion to hold item 10 in closed session and assert the attorney-client privilege with regard to item 10A. Second. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have seven yeses. We will go into closed session.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. Commissioners, we are back in open session and you still have a quorum. 
Line item 11, vote to elect whether to disclose any or all discussion on item 10 held in closed session, including a vote on whether to assert the attorney-client privilege with regard to item 10A, San Francisco Administrative Code Section 67.12A, action. Um, I will make a motion to disclose factual information received by the commission in item 10A, which will be reflected in the minutes of this meeting. This will include the dates that uh, the parties met for each listed department general order, the dates of any future meetings. If there are no future meetings, the disclosure will note that fact. Um, otherwise, uh, to not disclose and to assert uh, privilege for with our labor negotiator for the rest of item 10. Second. Members of the public to like to make public comment regarding line item 11, please approach the podium. There is no public comment on the motion. Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have seven yeses. Line item 12, adjournment.